Okay, so we are working on osteomyelitis. So if we break down this word, oops, osteomyelitis. Yeah, the word osteo obviously means bone. Um, my, when you see the word myelo, what do you usually think? Myelinated. Right, right. So when you see the word myelo, you're usually going to think spinal cord. So think meninges or myelination. That's perfect. So when you see the word myo, you think muscle. Okay, so here it's not fully, because um, I know I heard someone say bone, muscle, inflammation. So it's not truly, you don't have the true myo word in here. So when we talk about osteomyelitis, it actually doesn't have anything to do with the muscle itself, except that muscle attaches to bone. Okay, so don't, the, the M-Y-E does not mean muscle, does not mean muscle, so out the window. And then the itis we know is inflammation. Okay, so right off the bat, you're gonna tell me osteomyelitis is? Inflammation of the bone, wonderful. How on earth would you get inflammation in the bone? Okay, some kind of infection. How would you get an infection? What would be the most common ways to get an infection in bone? Surgery. Okay, so direct penetration. So if you fractured a bone, we haven't talked about fractures, we're not talking about it for another couple of weeks, but you can have a closed fracture, which basically means the bone breaks, but it doesn't break the skin. So in that sense, would it be really common to have an infection if the bone is broken inside? Probably not, but what if you have an open fracture, which basically means the ends of the bone would now tear open the skin? At that point, could you get any fungus, viruses, bacteria into the area and into the bone? Yes. Okay, so surgery. So direct penetration can be through surgery. It could be through needle injections. So anybody who's doing really deep, like IV injections, kind of things like that. Um, any kind of electromyography. So any kind of testing like that, there's always a possibility of this. Um, fractures, open fractures. Any way that you would get a pathogen, a bad guy, an antigen, through to the bone. So that's one way. How else do you think you could get an infection into bone? Uh, via like a blood infection? We're gonna use this word quite a bit today. Hematogenous. So you guys were supposed to learn um, hematology, patho pathological hematology, which is pathology of blood, different types of blood. So I don't think that was covered last semester, so I am gonna end up covering it this semester, which is fine. So when you, oh, hematology. So whenever you see the word hema, what do you think? Blood, perfect. So hematogenous spread means there's an infection in the blood, and where does blood go? Everywhere. Everywhere. So where could you get an infection? Anywhere. Anywhere that is supplied by blood, you could get an infection. So one of the places you can get a hematogenous spread of an infection would be into bone because bone is vascularized. So if there's any pathogens in there, could it end up into the bone? Okay, so why do you get the inflammation? How do you cure things? How do you get rid of an infection? How do you get rid of an injury? 
mount an inflammatory process. Because the whole point of inflammation is to bring blood supply to the area. How do you heal an area? How do you eat up debris? How do you clean up bad guys if you don't have white blood cells, macrophages? You don't. So in order to get your white blood cells, your immune system to the site, you need to have increased blood supply. So the itis happens because it recognizes that, is there supposed to be bacteria in the bone? No, so the body's like, okay, there's not supposed to be this, so let's create vasodilation, let's get exudate formation, let's get white blood cell immigration, all the steps of inflammation, and then you end up having, what kind of signs and symptoms would you have with inflammation? Redness, heat, swelling, loss of function, and pain. So right away, you already know some of the manifestations you're going to have with osteomyelitis. Are you going to have possible redness at the area? Are you going to have heat at the area? Are you going to have swelling at the area? Is there going to be pain in the area? Is there going to be loss of function? Now, how does that, give me a sec, how does it work to say loss of function in a bone? What does that mean? Well, you've got lots of, lots of blood supply to the bone. So you said not structurally sound. So the bone's not broken. It just has more blood cells in it trying to clean up the area. So its matrix is still there. It's still calcified. But there's pressure, like more pressure on it because of the more blood? Okay, could be. Impaired bone remodeling, like it's happening at um, a slower rate? So typically, as long as you can get rid of the infection, the bone will heal itself. Because it's so vascularized, it will actually go back to what it used to look like. So what else can you think of? Okay, so this doesn't, and I'm saying usually, because it definitely can in chronic osteomyelitis, but it doesn't usually affect bone marrow. So usually you still have your red blood cell production, white blood cell production, all that kind of stuff. It's usually not too affected, yeah. Well, definitely you're going to have pain, and you're going to have pain in the area of the osteomyelitis, of the infection of the bone. Mm -hmm. But Maybe in chronic osteomyelitis, but I'm hoping that this is going to get diagnosed before you go on with this for months and months and months. So let's go back to the function of the bone. So let's just say that we have a bone here, and we have an infection right here. Does the bone itself have any movement? When we usually talk of loss of function, we usually talk about like range of motion, right? Functional abilities. Give me one sec. Does the diaphysis or the metaphysis, does it move? No. So how does this work for loss of function? Well, you could end up having impairment of where the muscles attach. Okay, so they could create pain because you're creating some traction. So the muscles may not want to be activated because of pain. But the other thing that can happen is this doesn't usually spread. However, is it possible that it follows the joint capsule and can end up in joint? Can you get that infection that ends up in the joint? You can. That's really, really where you get the loss of function. You will have some loss of function because the bone attachment is going to be painful. But one of the sequelas or complications of osteomyelitis is that you could ed end up with, which is the next topic we're going to talk about, septic arthritis. Okay? So septic, what does sepsis mean? If we use the word sepsis, 
It's an infection of blood. That's basically all it is. And blood goes everywhere, so you could say definitely a systemic infection. So when you have sepsis, it means there's infection in the blood. So when you talk about septic arthritis, how would you break that down? Perfect. So the word arthro always means joint, itis means inflammation, and septic means infection. So secondary or a consequence or sequela of osteomyelitis is that it could follow that infection, the bad guy, the pathogen, could follow the joint capsule and end up in the joint, which would lead to septic arthritis. And that's a whole different ballgame that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Okay. So now that we know the, different, the two different ways that you can get osteomyelitis, it's either direct contact or impact or direct opening of the skin, or you get a hematogenous spread. What is the most common agent or pathogen or bad guy do you think would cause osteomyelitis? Bacteria. It is bacteria. And the most common bacteria that you can think of Staph aureus, Staphylococcus aureus. It is the most common bacterial infection that leads to osteomyelitis. Now, that would be your etiology, okay? When we talk about septic arthritis, which can be a consequence of osteomyelitis, guess what the etiology of septic arthritis is most commonly? Bacterial infection, which is a Staphylococcus aureus infection. So right away you can remember those two etiologies, they're the exact same. Okay? All right. So, who do you think gets osteomyelitis? Anyone. It can be anyone. Elderly? Um, the, I, and I, I see where you're going with that. The elderly have frail skin. Um, they are more likely to fall, usually because of balance issues. But are they typically the ones that have a lot of open wounds? Definitely IV drug use, um, definitely increased incidence. That's a huge risk factor for osteomyelitis. Anybody else? Yeah, anybody who's immune compromised, for sure. So next week, we're going to be talking about arthritis. So next week, we're going to be talking about rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, ankylosing spondylitis, writer's disease, psoriatic arthritis. All of those conditions are autoimmune diseases. And so most of these patients are going to be taking immunosuppressant medication. And that's so that the immune system doesn't fight off their own natural body cells. So anybody who's on immunosuppressants would have a lowered immune system. And of course, are they going to mount an inflammatory process if their immune system's lowered? Maybe not so much. Are they going to be able to fight a bacteria before it gets to the bone? Not so much. So definitely they're at more risk. Think about people who have more like open wounds, scrapes and bumps and bruises. Children, really common in kids. And septic arthritis, also very common in kids. Why? Kids fall down and get hurt all the time. They have open scrapes. Do they run and say, I need you to clean this, put a Band-Aid on? No, they go back in the sand. They go roll in the dirt. Right? So how likely is it that you're going to have an infection that could get deep into bone? Way more likely when you're a kid. When you have a cut, do you say, ah, whatever, I'm going to put some meat on it. Doesn't matter. Did you say you, meat? What? Anything, <laughs> anything with gross stuff in it, right? And it could be anything. No, you go and you usually clean it up with soap and water. That's the new first aid protocol. You don't put peroxide and all that other stuff on it. And then you 
cover it, right? Okay, so that's one of the reasons why kids are the most likely. So anybody that is diabetic is at risk. Why? Because the blood supply, again, is minimized. Anybody who has decreased blood supply, again, if you have decreased blood supply, can you mount an inflammatory response? Not so much. If you can't mount an inflammatory response, can you prevent the infection? Not so much. So we talked about recent injuries or any kind of mechanical surgeries, intravenous drug use, surgeries for sure, and then weakened immune system. So those are all the possible causes. Know the two different types, how it gets in, either direct penetration or hematogenous spread. Because we're gonna talk about hematogenous spread in a few other conditions today, like TB and septic arthritis as well, and there might be another one. So don't ask me why it's more common in boys and girls, because I don't, I actually haven't read anything that's indicative as to why boys are more likely to have osteomyelitis, but it could be that boys are a little bit more rough and tumbled. It's kind of the thought process, but we don't really know. So actually, before we do that, if you have an infection, what's one of the first signs you look for? Fever. Okay. So if I were to come to you with a fever, one of the things, and bone pain, one of the things you could think about is osteomyelitis. What if I told you my elbow really hurt and I had a fever? You might want to think about septic arthritis. Okay, so fever is a really big one, and we're going to talk about fever a couple of times today. Is fever one of your red flags for cancer? It's not a red flag for cancer. It's one of those like yellow flags, which it's an extra sign, but it's not necessarily one of the big ones. What are the three big red flags for cancer? Unexplained weight loss, unexplained night pain, unexplained night sweats. Those are your three big, big, big red flags. And then you have individual red flags for each system that we kind of went through. Fatigue, yes. Malaise, yes. But do you get that with the flu? You get it with everything. Do you think you're going to get this if you have osteomyelitis? Your body is working overtime to fight an infection. Are you going to feel tired? Yeah. Septic arthritis. Your body is working overtime to fight an infection. Are you going to feel tired? Yeah. So it's not necessarily a big red flag just for cancers, but with infections as well, that's something that you're going to have. So we already talked about local pain. We already talked about local redness and swelling. We already talked about loss of function because of the attachment of muscles. So there's going to be pain at the local area. And there's going to be fever. So those are all big ones, yeah. Uh, what it, like, when it is attacking bone, is it on the outside or is it more like inside the bone? It's usually going to be in the spongy part because that is usually the more vascular part. I mean, the cortical bone is vascularized, but it typically is usually in the spongy part um, unless it's coming from a direct contact. If it's coming from a hematogenous spread from the blood, usually spongy. If it's coming from direct contact, depending on where that direct contact went through. If it went through the whole bone into the spongy, then yes, but if it just hit the cortical, you could end up having it that starts in the cortical bone and then ends up in the trabecular spongy bone. Would it hurt them more, like let's say if they're jumping and then their body has to like, absorb the shock, would they feel it more than men in their bone? Anytime they're gonna use the muscles that attach to that bone, there's gonna be pain. So yeah, there would definitely be pain with walking, jumping, um, but even just like if it was, let's say in the femur, even just extending in the knee, even non-weight bearing would be painful. So yes, definitely with weight bearing, if it was in a weight bearing bone, you would definitely feel it. So, and then malaise and fatigue are big ones. So 
Now this possible neurological presentation. It is more common to have osteomyelitis in long bones because that's usually where you get injured, right? It's not very common that people get scrapes and bumps and bruises in the spine. It's usually more wrist, ankles, elbows, knees, right? So those are more common places that you get osteomyelitis. But if it did end up in the spine, let's just say it was through hematogenous spread. So let's say you had sepsis, an infection of the blood, and it ended up in the bones in the spine. Could that massive amount of inflammation of the bone compress on radicular nerves? It's possible. So in that case, you could end up with a radiculopathy, right? Which would end up with an impingement of the nerve root. So you would then have neurological symptoms. It's not super classical with osteomyelitis. So it's not one of the big, big symptoms you look for. That's only really if it's present in the spine and there's a lot of inflammation. The rest of it though is fairly um, common. Now the psoas abscess, I'm gonna come back to that because that is really, 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 really big in um, POTS disease, which is tuberculosis of the spine. So we'll talk about that when we talk about tuberculosis of the spine. It is possible with osteomyelitis if it's in the spine, but not super likely. Okay, so how does this get diagnosed? So the thing is with an x-ray. So why is it that Let's say if you went in for an x-ray, you, you had a, I don't know, you had a fall off your bike and you were pretty sure you had a fracture. You did your, you know, the tuning fork, you hit it and you put the end on and you had pain. That's usually 80% that you have a fracture and that's one of the tests that we can do, right? Because we don't do MRI, CTs or x-rays. So once you've done a tuning fork test and you refer your patient out for an x-ray and they come back and say, well, my doctor says I don't have a fracture. Why is it that a week or two later, if they go back for another x-ray, that all of a sudden they find the fracture? Well, x-rays get taken up by bone. So the inflammation, I mean, you would still have calcified bone even if you had a fracture. So you would still be able to see bone. So it's not really because of the inflammation. Now you'd be able to see that on the CT or MRI, but why can't you see the fracture? Is it No, because it would be, again, x-rays you can only, you see white on an x-ray because it needs to be a calcified structure in order for you to see it on an x-ray. Inflammation wouldn't be a calcified structure, so you wouldn't see it on x-ray. The big problem with x-rays is you need 30% of bone destruction before you can see it on an x-ray. That's a lot. So if your bones only destroy 15 or 20%, let's say it's a very small hairline fracture, for example, and there's not significant bone destruction, you won't see it. So if an x-ray doesn't catch a fracture and you're pretty sure there's a fracture and they did it within 24 to 48 hours of the injury, tell them to go back in a week or two and re-x-ray. It'll probably come up. It just takes enough time for the body to then disintegrate the area, because that's what it does. It eats up the area that's injured. And once it's eaten up the area that's injured, it usually then will show up and it takes a little bit of time for that inflammation to occur. So that's the big problem with x-rays. So you may not see osteomyelitis on an x-ray. So if you send someone for an x-ray and you really do think it's osteomyelitis and it's not found on an x-ray and their pain continues to get worse and worse and worse, please send them for a CT scan. The CT or MRI will pick it up. Ultrasounds, possibly, but the CT 100% will pick it up, okay? So x-rays are a great first method because they're super cheap and available. 
but they're not great at detecting everything because you do need a certain amount of bone destruction before you can actually see it. So, MRI is fantastic. Usually they'll get sent for an x-ray first, but MRI or CT is really the best way. If you really want to be 100% sure, you shove a needle in there, you take some of the fluid, and then you examine it. It's not a nice technique, but it's necessary. And then you can find out what is truly the causative agent. Because typically if you have osteomyelitis, if you think that the causative agent is Staphylococcus aureus, what do you prescribe? What does a medical professional prescribe? Antibiotics. Because it is the most common etiological agent that's going to cause osteomyelitis. Let's just say it's not. Let's just say it's not a bacteria. So then you get prescribed antibiotics, and then what happens? You don't get better. It just keeps getting worse. So aspirating the bone so that you can actually take a sample out and look at it under the microscope and cultivate it, then you'll know 100% it is actually a bacterial infection versus a fungal infection or a viral infection. So it is a good idea to do that. Now, sometimes what they'll do is they'll prescribe antibiotics. They'll do IV antibiotics, so you're going to get admitted to the hospital. Um, they might only keep you for the day, maybe 24 hours, and send you home with an IV at home. Um, but typically, they'll, especially if you're an infant, they'll usually keep you for a couple of days. Oh yeah, they might do antibiotics first and do you know a three to five day course and see if you start feeling better before they do the needle biopsy. Because if you don't start feeling better, then they'll do the needle biopsy to figure out exactly what's going on. So it kind of depends on who you are, what your health sta status is, and who the doctor is. So surgery is not something that's typically done for this. Okay, it's usually IV antibiotics, and then within a week or two, you're pretty good to go. Okay, then they might give you some oral ones to send home with, but you're usually pretty good. The only time you would ever require surgery, number one, is if it's in the spine, it's infecting, and it's causing an infection or impacting the radicular nerves, they might look at doing some surgery to decompress the area. Um, or if it's gone into septic arthritis and they're not able to control it through IV antibiotics. But surgery is not common. Okay, this is a fairly easy thing that can get treated as long as it's detected early enough. All right, the big consequences, sepsis, septicemia, infection of the blood. Because let's just say it was a direct trauma that caused, could that infection from the direct trauma jump into the blood supply? Yeah, right, because bone is supplied by blood so it could easily jump into there and then meningitis is always a possibility more so with spinal osteomyelitis but it is definitely a possibility of secondary to sepsis right okay no and meningitis is not good although as an adult you can usually deal with it fairly well really? yeah infants don't deal well with it first year of life they don't deal well with it Osteomyelitis can be thought of simply as a bone infection. Osteomyelitis occurs when microorganisms, usually bacteria, are able to grow in bone and bone marrow. There are two ways that the microorganisms can be introduced into the bone. The first way is through an open wound. The open wound may occur with an injury, such as an open fracture. There are bacteria everywhere. If bone is exposed to dirt, water, or even air, microorganisms may seed to the bone, begin to grow, and cause an infection. 
Bone may also be exposed to microorganisms in open sores and overlying soft tissue infections. People with diabetes often have sores on their feet that can become infected. Orthopedic implants such as plates, screws, and knee replacement prostheses make good places for bacteria to grow. The second way that osteomyelitis occurs is when microorganisms travel through the blood until they are able to settle in the bone. This is known as hematogenous infection. Often, this occurs because bacteria from another infection in the body travel through the bloodstream to the bone. Whatever the cause and whatever the source, the infection can begin to eat away at the bone. This can result in pain, loss of function, a collection of pus known as an abscess, and dead bone. Osteomyelitis is not usually visible on x-rays for several days after it begins. It will show up earlier on MRIs or bone scans. Blood work is also important. The white blood cell count is usually high. Lab values, known as the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or SED rate, and the CRP, C-reactive protein, are usually obtained when osteomyelitis is suspected. If they are high, it raises the doctor's suspicion of infection. These lab values are monitored as the infection is treated. If they drop, it is an indication that the treatment is working. Treatment depends on what bone is involved, where the infection is located, whether an abscess or dead bone is present, the age of the patient, and other factors. Treatment often involves surgery to remove infected bone and soft tissue. The affected area is thoroughly irrigated to wash away the bacteria and pus. The infected bone is then sent to the lab for analysis. Within a few days, the bacteria can be grown in a culture in the lab and tested with different antibiotics to see which antibiotics are most effective at killing it. While the doctors wait for these culture and sensitivity results, they can only make an educated guess as to which antibiotics will be best. This is known as empirical treatment. They make this guess based on what types of organisms have caused similar infections in similar patients. These antibiotics are usually given through an IV. IV antibiotics are often necessary for several weeks after the infection is discovered. Find success with a career in the skilled trades. So when they cut off the bone like that, um, it's not common that they actually cut the bone. What they'll usually do is they'll go in and uh, curatage is what it's called. They actually like scrape out the area. Um, they'll usually try and you'll be hospitalized for a little bit after that, but they usually try and get you home and minimize your activity levels because it's going to take time for that bone to create the matrix and the calcification. But no, they don't like take out a piece of bone, they'll usually just clean it up. Yeah, they like scrape it out. Yeah, no, they usually scrape out the area. Now, again, that's assuming that it's, it's under control, right? Okay, so septic arthritis. Okay, we already talked about what that means. That means an infection, joint, and inflammation. So because of an infection, there's inflammation in the joint. So remind me, actually we should just go through a little bit of anatomy. Um, we're gonna talk about bone cancers today, so some cancers are more prevalent in certain areas. So let's talk about the different areas of the bone because we're gonna talk about that later on. 
The epiphysis are the ends of the bone, right? The ends of a long bone, for example. The metaphysis is the transition between the end and the diaphysis, which is also known as the shaft. So we have the epiphyseal growth plate in what part of the bone? Where is the epiphyseal growth plate? It's actually in the metaphysis. It's in the transition part, close to the epiphysis, but it's not actually considered part of the epiphysis. So the epiphyseal growth plate is a growth plate actually in the metaphysis. So you should really call it metaphyseal growth plate, but we don't. Okay, so now that we know that, so we know we have epiphyses that make up a synovial joint, and we know in orange we're gonna have this articular cartilage, which we talked about two weeks ago. In blue, what do we have in blue again? Um, so all of this, all of this is going to be the joint capsule. Right, so the internal part of the joint capsule is the synovial membrane. And what was the outer part? What was this? What was the outer part of the joint capsule? Fibrous capsule, good. Okay, so remind me what we talked about was the importance of the synovial membrane. What does the synovial membrane do? Create synovial fluid. Okay, so it will be somewhat vascularized. Let's just say now that I do have an infection. So I have a bad guy, I have bacteria in the joint. So is that normal to have bacteria, fungus, viruses in a joint? No. So what do we do about it? How? Mount an inflammatory process. You're going to get so bored of this because that's pretty much the answer every single time. So you're going to mount an inflammatory process. How on earth do you get white blood cells, phagocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, basophils, all that stuff, how do you get it in here? Because it's kind of a closed environment. What's that? But the inflammation is happening inside the joint, which is kind of like a, a Ziploc bag closed. Synovial membrane. The synovial membrane will actually thicken. Its job is to produce synovial fluid. But now I'm saying I need you not only to produce synovial fluid, but I need to get more stuff into there because I have something abnormal that I need to get rid of. So the synovial fluid is actually, or the synovial membrane is actually going to thicken, have a little bit more blood supply, and then start spitting out white blood cells, phagocytes, monocytes, all that stuff, so that it can mount an inflammatory response. Okay, so now we have an inflammatory response occurring. What does that mean? What's happening in this joint? Is there more pressure in the joint? Is there more fluid in the joint? Okay, and typically, do you have things that like to eat in the joint? Not normally, because if it did, it would start to erode your tissues, and probably within your 30s, your joints would start eroding. But they don't, because normally, this is just synovial fluid. It's usually very viscous, it's very water-like. But now you've got something bad in there and you have to get your immune system in there to be able to fight it. So what now happens to this nice fluid, liquid-like structure of your synovial cavity? It thickens. 
We're going to see this word in another condition. The term panis means that there's additional pressure and fluid content and proteins. Proteins is kind of the problem because that thickens up this material. No longer is it fluid, it's more like jelly-like. So now try and move your, your joints when they're really like fluid-like. How's it feel? It's easy. Now move the joint when you've got jello. It's a lot harder. So sometimes the septic arthritis can actually present like arthritis because they're going to have pain. You may not see the redness, but you'll probably see the swelling. You may see the heat and you're definitely going to have loss of function. So if there hasn't been any trauma, what do you think? You might think, okay, you might be developing arthritis. But if this is a person in their 20s, is that common? It's possible, but not common. So then what do you look at? So if, how would I differentiate between, let's say, septic arthritis and just a different type of arthritide, like an arthritis? Fever! It's true! With arthritis, you don't typically have fevers. There's an exception to the rule, and it's juvenile idiopathic arthritis, but that happens in kids. Typically, you don't have fever. When do you have fever? When there's an infection. Guess what's happening here? There's an infection. So when you have joint pain, and it's going on for more than a day because you bumped it, for example, there might be a problem. Also, look for any openings in the area. If there's no openings in the area, maybe ask them if they've had some kind of infection. Have they had the flu? Have they had strep throat, have they had pneumonia? Because any of those can jump into the blood and then end up causing an infection in the joint. Okay, so panis is a really important term. So it's basically a thickening of the synovial fluid because there's increased amount of protein in the area. You also see that with rheumatoid arthritis. So we will talk about that again when we talk about rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, so that's septic arthritis. Who do you think is likely to get septic arthritis? Maybe. Kids! <laughs> Who gets bumps and bruises and has cuts all the time and doesn't care about cleaning them? Kids! Kids! So it's really quite common, kind of like under the 25, under 30 age. It's much more common. Is it possible when you're 40, 50, 60, 70? Of course! Is it common with bed sores? Um, so. Bed sores typically are usually in the gluteal area and there's lots of tissue. So it would have to be at a grade three or four before it actually became sepsis. So is it a possible consequence of bed sores? Definitely. Normally, they'll be caught at grade stage one or two and if they're properly treated and the person's moved often, it'll never get to it creating sepsis. But yes, definitely a possibility. But again, not super common because it should be monitored and it should be caught. All right. So same thing, your primary cause or your etiology is going to be Staphylococcus aureus, which is a bacterial infection. So how would you treat this? Antibiotics, and usually it's IV antibiotics. Same thing applies here. You may, if there starts to, okay, let's, and actually this is gonna go on to rheumatoid arthritis, but we'll talk about it now. Let's just say now that this septic arthritis gets misdiagnosed for months and months and months. You have proteoglycans and macrophages and phagocytes and all kinds of white blood cells and T cells in here. 
and they all like to eat. So, if this went on for a prolonged period of time, could it start to eat away at the synovial membrane? If it started eating away at the synovial membrane, what's the next structure it starts to eat? The articular cartilage. If it keeps going and it eats the articular cartilage, what's the next thing it'll start to eat? The epiphysis. So, the exact same thing happens with rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is a progressive autoimmune disease, which we're going to talk about next week, but it is destructive. It destroys joints. How does it do that? Panis is being created. It's not something you can ever get rid of. This is a chronic progressive disease. So it's, you're going to have proteoglycans and macrophages and, and macrocytes that are going to eat. So over years and years and years, 10, 15, 20 years, eventually you're going to start to erode the synovial membrane, which now means you're going to erode the articular cartilage, and eventually you're going to erode the epiphysis. So septic arthritis should not get to that point. Okay? Usually the pain is significant enough, and pain at night too, usually the pain is significant enough with the fever that usually people will go get checked. So... Um, very similar manifestations, okay, acute onset, yeah, joint swelling, loss of range of motion, we already talked about that, fever, okay, um, now the pustering, this is more likely with septic arthritis than it is with osteomyelitis, a pustering basically means, I've just sent a whole bunch of immune system to my joint, and there's going to be a lot of pressure in here. If this does go on for a prolonged period of time, it can actually start eating away at the joint capsule, which now means that is there more pressure in here or out here? Inside. There's more pressure inside. So where do I want to go as pus, as the debris, right? Where do I want to go? I want to go where there's less pressure. So I'm going to go. And then this is like, partially dead cellular debris and immunoglobulins and B cells and T cells. And so when it sits around connective tissue, it'll start to erode it. So then it erodes the ligaments and then it can erode the fascia and then it'll erode the skin and then it just dumps out, okay? Now, would a pus drain be common for septic arthritis? It would have to be going on for such a long time, like months and months and months, maybe even a year or so before you got the pus drain. So again, the idea is that hopefully it gets diagnosed before that time. Because the pus drain, if, it's, if you're at that point, you've got damage going on at the joint. So if you, let's just say we got to the point that you have a pus drain, what is likely to occur? You've damaged the joint. So either a partial joint replacement or a full joint replacement is awfully required. So it's really important to find this, to diagnose this early. Because the consequence of not diagnosing it early is it will destroy the joint and you will require a surgical procedure. So if you're in your 20s or 30s, which it's more common under the age of 30, if you're in your 20s or 30s, do you really want to get a joint replacement? Because no. that joint replacement is going to last 10, 15 years. If you're lucky, maybe 20. So basically you're going to get one at 25 and then you'll get one maybe at 35, 40, 45, and then maybe again at like 55, 60, and then if you're still living, maybe again at like 75, 80. Really? Who wants to go through that? Nobody. So early detection to avoid 
the destruction of the joint. It's really important. It's true. Nobody. Like, no last one. Um, this, this is one of those ones that it will come to you guys. Be, like, most patients will come to you with this stuff and have no idea this is what's going on. And you'll be the first one to have the thought process of it. If you're, especially if you're working in the barrier, I can't speak about anybody anywhere else, but at least like a third of my patients, if not even more, maybe even 40%, do not have GPs. So they go to the walk-in clinic, walk-in clinic says, oh, you have a fever? Here, take these antibiotics. What if it's not the right antibiotic? What if it's not a bacterial infection at all? So it is really important <coughs> that you guys do catch this because you're the MSK specialist, not the GPs. I can tell you that right now. So you're not going to prescribe the medications, of course, but you will be the ones that will hopefully recognize this to be able to get them appropriate medical care. Because if they go to a walk-in clinic and they don't get the care they need, you need to tell them to keep going back to different clinics if they don't have a GP because it needs to get treated. Because the alternative is, if it doesn't, it destroys the joint. Okay. So very similar with the way it gets diagnosed and the medication is very similar. So let's just say now that a patient gets sent to eMERGE and you tell them you really think that they're septic arthritis and the eMERGE doc takes a CT scan or does a needle aspiration or a biopsy and says, yep, it is septic arthritis. Okay, so we're going to treat it with IV. Wonderful. So that's going to be the medical perspective. What's our perspective? Okay, so you, if this is one of your patients and you're the one that you may have come up with this kind of indication. You may go to the hospital. I have gone to the hospital and treated a couple of my patients. Of course, I have to make sure it's okay with them. And if they're not of the age of majority, I always make sure it's okay with the parents. But you may want to make a trip into the hospital. And if you did, what treatments would you provide? You could. Um, as long as there wasn't any acute inflammation, you could do lymphatic drainage. You don't want to do lymphatic drainage if there's a lot of acute inflammation at this point. What else could you do? Passive range of motion. So in order to nourish the joint, you have to move it. So in the hospital, unfortunately, if they're on IV antibiotics, they're usually in a bed. And it's not very common, unless you're on the rehab floor, that the PTs or the OTs are going to come into your room and do physical therapy with you. It's not very common. The nurses might come in and say, okay, let's try and get you up. Let's try and get you to the bathroom. Let's try and get you onto a wheelchair. But that might happen once a day, might happen twice a day, depending on how busy they are. You need to get this joint moving as much as possible. Of course, if they're in acute inflammation, they're in significant pain, don't get them to do it all the time. But you maybe want to teach somebody that's going to be there significantly, a significant other or a parent, just how to do some passive range of motion. You may want to talk to them about doing some isometrics. But you need to do something to get this a little bit mobile. Because if they don't move it for four, five, six, seven, eight days, nine days if they're in the hospital for that long, you are not nourishing the joint. So are you creating contractures? Are you creating scar tissue? So your job is going to be to make sure that either you educate them if you're not into the hospital setting, if you're not going to visit them, and get them moving passively initially over the first, you know, maybe not do a whole lot of treatments for the first day or two they're on IV, but then by day three, four, five, you want to get them moving, and you want to teach them some things that they can do, okay? So it doesn't necessarily have to be weight-bearing, but you do need to get them moving. 
So we will watch a little video about this. And you may think of an adult for kids, arthritis can be just as painful and the treatment incredibly important. We find out more in today's Health Matters. Oh, those aches and pains, they often come with aging. But for kids, pain in the joints could signal something more serious. Inflammation, infection, septic arthritis. This here is an illustration of a hip in a pediatric patient. Here's the ball and socket of the hip joint. Here they've shown the blood vessels coming in. An infection has started, what's called the thermal neck. And once again, it can break out. The it Dr. Wagner is referring to is bacteria. Here, it can get into the joint. And that's called septic arthritis if you have an infection of the joint. That's particularly potentially devastating to the cartilage because the cartilage once again, does not have a good blood supply, and it has limited ability to fight off bacterial infection. And if infection is left in the joint for a significant amount of time, it can lead to irreversible changes in cartilage, which we all know is arthritis. Septic arthritis is considered a medical emergency because of the serious damage it can leave on the bone and cartilage. It can also lead to septic shock pain in the joints isn't the only symptom. There's also uh, possible constitutional system uh, symptoms, such as fever, um, uh, rashes, and, and other uh, things that may, you, may lead you to think about uh, infection. Dr. Wagner, a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, says infections can develop for a variety of reasons. He works with parents to zero in on the culprit. A good examination of the child and, and the right questions will lead you down the history of is this trauma, is this infection, and then we proceed with other diagnostic tests. Antibiotics are the first line of defense to reduce inflammation. Draining the joint is another option to help reduce the pressure. Reporting for Lee Memorial Health System, I'm John Bafar. Children with weaker immune systems are more susceptible to this. Anybody with weaker immune systems are more susceptible. Okay, so we have not talked about juvenile idiopathic arthritis yet. Um, for those of you that have learned this before, it used to be called JRA, Juvenile Rheumatoid Arthritis. We no longer use that term, and we use the term Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis. I'm not going to teach it today, we're teaching it next week, but it's really important to remember your differential diagnosis or differential clinical impressions. Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis is an autoimmune disease. Okay, so it is, the etiology would be very different, but the presentation is very similar. It affects juvenile, idiopathic arthritis. So it would affect kids and adolescents. So usually once you're past the like 16 to 18 range, if you haven't been diagnosed with JIA, you won't be. It doesn't usually develop after that point. It usually develops in childhood or adolescence. So there's three different kinds which we're going to learn about. But common symptoms would be what? If they have arthritis of a joint, what do you think a common symptom for a kid is? Pain, redness, heat, swelling, stiffness. So when a kid has an injured knee or a painful elbow, what do they do? Well, yeah, they, they guard it. So if you ever see a child not wanting to use a limb, think about it. Ask if there's any fever or check to see if there's any fever because if there are, you're going down a different path for your differential diagnoses. If there's no fever and it's been going on for a prolonged period of time, like we're talking about many, many, many months and there hasn't been any trauma, there hasn't been any infection, 
then you may want to think about a different pathway. So it is really important when you're asking your history intake, it's really important to get a full picture. But juvenile idiopathic arthritis, the reason it's such a close differential diagnosis is because they present with fever, malaise, fatigue, joint pain, loss of function, inflammation at the joint. What does that sound like? It could sound like the flu, but it could also sound like septic arthritis. So JIA is a very close differential diagnosis when you have septic arthritis, okay? If they come back with a biopsy or the CT scan and the joint is fine and they've ruled out septic arthritis, then you may want to think about JIA, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, as a secondary diagnosis and refer them to a rheumatologist. Okay, don't let the medical system stop the buck there. So how do they differentiate then if they're so similar? Testing. Oh. Would it just be like a higher white blood cell count? Or like well, this isn't an infection, so you're yeah, actually exactly. not going to have very high white blood cell count. Yes, you would definitely would. Um, and the amount of panis formation that you have, you don't have that with JIA. So yeah, there are some, once you go in and actually do like a full complete blood count and then you do your immunoglobulin counts and then you would do an aspiration or a biopsy, you would get a clear picture. Okay, so just, it's good to kind of have an idea of what your differential diagnoses are because when you, sometimes we're wrong and that's okay. I'd rather refer somebody out and find out I'm wrong than to never refer them out and find out a year later that it was my fault they didn't get diagnosed early. Okay, skeletal tuberculosis. Okay, TB. You guys already learned about TB, tuberculosis, right? Yes, good. What do you know about TB? <laughs> it can live on some inanimate objects. Then you can but be a carrier but not have signs Okay. And then once you have the cough, then, then you become a kid. Like the gone foca in their yeah, lungs? They, they cover and then that's where it's dormant. Okay. Okay, so you guys have just told me basically that you can be a carrier, which we would say you have a latent TB infection, or you can have the active form, which means you actually have signs and symptoms. You've also told me that the gong foci get formed in the lungs. So you've told me this is a pulmonary issue. Okay. Right? What is the causative agent? What is the etiology? Mycobacterium tuberculosis or tubercula. Okay, so what is a mycobacterium? No, it is a bacteria, but it's a special type of bacteria. Do you take antibiotics when you have TB? No. You don't because they don't work. It's, it's, it's a modified bacteria. It's not really a superbug, but it's a modified bacteria. So bacteria usually don't have capsules, which is why antibiotics work so well, because they can literally just destroy their mitochondria and their DNA and all that kind of stuff. But mycobacteriums actually have a capsule which is why antibiotics don't work. So if you have TB, prescribing antibiotics does nothing. 
So mycobacterium tuberculosis is going to be the causative agent, and it is a mycobacterium, which is a specialized type of bacteria that have capsules. Now you told me they were in the pulmonary system. So why does tuberculosis, why does mycobacterium go to the lungs and replicate in the lungs? Well, bacteria like warm, moist environments, true, but why the lungs? <sighs> These are aerobic beings. They need oxygen to live. So, why does tuberculosis, why is it diagnosed in the lungs? Because anywhere else, it doesn't function very well, it doesn't live very well because you don't have as much oxygen. You have tons of oxygen in your lungs. That's why it thrives in the lungs and it grows in the lungs and it takes over the lungs. And when it really starts to go crazy, could it dump into the blood supply? So there would be a hematogenous spread. So now you've got this mycobacterium tuberculosis that's now in your blood supply. Where could it stop? It could stop in bone. And primarily it really likes the spine. If it's gonna stop anywhere, it's usually the spine. Most commonly, it's T-spine and lumbar spine. It's not as common in the cervical spine. So the two most common places to get skeletal or skeletal tuberculosis, also known as POS disease, is going to be in the T-spine or the lumbar spine. Okay, so we need to know it's aerobic. What else did you guys learn about the mycobacterium, about tuber tuberculosis, TB? So in the lungs, yes. So you can be a carrier or latent, and if you are a latent carrier, or you have latent TB infection, it basically means your immune system has walled off that area. Okay, so... Right, if your immune system goes down, then you don't have that walling off happening, and now it can rep reproduce. But tell me a little bit more about this. What's the difference? Like, What's the difference between being latent and being active? So I know that one is just kind of hanging out in the lungs and the other one doesn't necessarily have that walled off area. So what does that mean for the patient? Okay, if I'm latent, I don't, have any, I don't typically have any symptoms, but what else does it mean? Contagious. If I'm latent, am I contagious? Nothing is 100%, but yes, typically you're not contagious. So we're going to say not contagious. What if I'm active? We are contagious. Okay, so what does that mean, contagious? How does this get to someone else? It is airborne. So every time I speak, I'm spitting. I don't mean to spit, but that's what happens. We have droplets. Every time... You speak every time you cough, there is droplets coming out of your mouth. Those droplets have mycobacterium in them. So if we're in a very closed off area, like a really busy classroom or the subway, or you're at a concert and someone's like, <coughs> mycobacterium, and you're like, <gasps> and there it goes. Okay, so. Easy, easy transmission. It's not so much if you're not in a crowded area, because if there's enough space between you, are my droplets really going to hit you? Probably not. But when you're like in a really close, confined space, it's much more common, right? So that's why it's a bit of a problem in 
communities that have really high um, density population or areas like um, rooming homes or shelters and things like that, it would be much more common. Okay, so now that we know a little bit about TB. So we know it starts, it's a, it starts as a pulmonary tuberculosis. That's where the infection starts. And if the infection does not get treated, then eventually it can dump into the blood system so it can hematogenously spread to the skeletal system. Okay, so we need to know that POTS is also known as spinal TB. Okay, that's really important. Hint, hint. We also need to know that the hematogenous spread, that means the TB spreading through the body, through blood, that goes to the spine is known as miliary TB. Not military, hint, hint. Okay, so if I use the term miliary TB, it means it started at the lungs, dumped into the blood system, and then went to the spine, which would cause POTS disease. Okay, so the miliary spread of pulmonary TB leads to POTS disease. So, if you have mycobacterium in your spine, it likes the vertebral bodies, by the way. Is that normal? So here you have this mycobacterium in your vertebral body. It's not normal. What's the body going to do? Inflammation. Mount an inflammatory process. So now it starts to like degrade that and degrade the bone around it. And as it continues to spread, it will eventually start to affect the discs. So now you've got an inflammatory response in the disc. What does that present like? And typically it's going to be that middle to low back pain. How many people here have had low back pain? Did you ever think you had TB? No. Now, if someone told you that they were a latent TB or they were a carrier of TB or they had TB once and it got treated and now they have spinal issues, ask the questions again. Have you had any respiratory issues? Have you had the chronic cough? Have you had a fever? Because if so, it may be in fact that the pulmonary infection somewhat got resolved, but it was already dumped into the blood system and now you could have it in the spine. So unless you've done an x-ray, which again, you may not catch this in the first few months with an x-ray because if you don't have 30% of the joint destruction or the bone destruction, you don't see it. So unless you're Sure, through x-ray, CT, and or MRI, or an aspiration, a bone biopsy, you're sure it's not TB, then you can look at your other things. But if there's a history of TB, this should be on your list of differential diagnoses. Can you have latent TB in the bone? Or once it's in the bone, it is doing its thing? If it's latent, it's because it's been encapsulated and the immune system's warding it off. It, doesn't usually survive anywhere else. Like, sorry, it doesn't usually thrive anywhere else except for the lungs. So once it's in the bone, it's an infection. It, yeah, you, it would not be latent in the bone. And can your body yeah? fight it off when it's in the bone? Or, um, or does it like encapsulate it? Well, how quickly is it diagnosed? No, it does not encapsulate it. One, the only place you would truly get an encapsulation like the gong foci would be in the lungs. Once it's hit blood, it will 
destroy the area, depending on how long it's going on for. So here you are, let's just say, and you have, you have POTS disease. So you're going to have back pain. That's a fairly good guess. Anything else you're going to have for manifestations? POTS. Yeah, for POTS. So you, have, you don't know you have spinal TB, but what other symptoms would you look for? You're obviously looking for back pain. Anything else you're looking for? Fever, for sure. Is this an infection? Yep, so your malaise, fatigue, for sure. Okay, so he said neurological symptoms. Is it possible that you would have neurological symptoms with POTS disease? Again, you would have to have a fair bit of inflammation or the infection would have to be a fair amount in order to actually start affecting the radicular nerves. But is it possible? And one of the consequences, again, is meningitis. Anything else that you might see as a possible manifestation? So here you are, you're in the spine, and you have all this infection in the spine, and it's infecting the, the discs, and so you've got all this pressure here. T-spine and lumbar spine, you got all this pressure. You got all this garbage here, all this pus formation here. Where does it want to go? Do you like pressure? No, it wants to go out. So, psoas major, what are the attachment points? What are the origins of psoas major? So it's T12 all the way down to L5, vertebral bodies and TVPs. And then what is the insertion point? Lesser trochanter. So, imagine you've got all this pus formation in the TL area, thoracolumbar area, or into the lumbar spine, and don't like it, so how can I get out? Hey, there's this thing here called psoas. I'm just gonna trickle along the psoas muscle. So as I follow the psoas muscle, it ends up in the groin. Well, now I've got connective tissue I have to go through. That's okay. I can eat through anything. So I'm then gonna eat through my connective tissue, I'm gonna eat through the fascia, I'm gonna eat through the skin, and now all of a sudden you've got this leaking pus coming out of the groin. Not uncommon with POTS disease, especially if it's not caught, which, how many people have low back pain? It's very common. So what's the first thing you, would you think of TB of the spine? No, what would you do? You do all your testing. If any of your testing reproduces the pain, you treat based on it. So you don't refer out, so you treat. Then you realize after a handful of treatments, shoot, this isn't working. What do we do now? Okay, let's change my treatment plan. Let's reassess. Okay, another five to seven treatments. And then, geez, it's still not working. Okay, let's get you back to your GP to get some testing done. So it might take you a month to get in your GP. So then it might take you another couple of weeks to get the testing done. So now we're looking at four, five, six months. Is it possible you get the drain within that? Yeah. Would this person like know they had TB in their lungs first before all this happened? Typically, I will say yes. Mm -hmm. However, there are some individuals who are carriers with very small symptoms mm -hmm. that they don't really get recognized. So normally, at some point, you will know that you're either a carrier or you've had TB. Um, so when it spreads to... But this could happen months to years later. Right. Like, so and would it happen only in the active stage or in the latent stage? So... 
Well, it, it, I could have had active TB, yeah. and then it became latent, yeah. and then I couldn't end up with post disease a year later, three years later, five years later, oh. and not have major signs and symptoms. Mm. When to the point of the abscess and psoas cause like sepsis? Because if that's well, sepsis already occurred because that's how it got spread to the spine. Well, like, like, oh, you mean like really bad sepsis where yeah. you could die from it? Because like technically, Possibly? if it's coming out into your psoas, that's like when your internal organs in your um, So not necessarily. Or is it like, like in the actual muscle? It would be behind the peritoneum because the peritoneum is a closed environment. Yeah. So it wouldn't really affect your viscera because your viscera really are protected by the peritoneum. The only thing it could possibly affect would maybe be your kidneys and maybe your pancreas, but it doesn't usually go as high as the pancreas. And again, it, no, it wouldn't because the peritoneum, uh, yeah, which protects it. What's that? How often does it get to that? That's a good question. I couldn't answer that. I've never seen, I've seen apostases, but I've never seen the drain. I've never seen a pus drain. I just feel like you would, I don't know, like could that just get skipped? The drain? No, like oh, the steps to that. Like. This gets misdiagnosed often, yes. The problem with arthritides, uh, when we get next week, I'll tell you, we had this, I had this one patient and it was seven years. He saw, I can't even count how many physios, how many osteos, how many chiropractors. Um, it was seven years of seeing everybody that he could get his hands on to help him with his hand and wrist pain. And we finally figured out, I, you got to go back and get some blood tests because I had no idea what was going on. Finally, his GP was like, I don't know what to do. So I wrote a letter. I'm like, can we please get him either to a rheumatologist or an endocrinologist or to a hematologist? So an um, internist. Um, anyways, it, luckily he got sent to a rheumatologist and ended up being psoriatic arthritis. Seven years. Because it was MSK presentation. So who do you go see when it's a musculoskeletal presentation? You go see your massage therapist or your osteopath or your chiro or your physio, right? So this stuff does happen, unfortunately. <coughs> Question? Okay, I thought you had one. So um, they're going, there is treatment for this, just like how you would treat TB. It's the exact same thing. Now, you guys had to do a test before you came into the, you no, know, before you did clinic, right? What did you do? Two steps. Okay, so you guys did the Skin Man 2 test. Okay. So, okay. So, with the Skin Man 2 test, did anybody have a positive? Did anybody stay really elevated? It's, it's not uncommon, actually. So the Skin Man 2 test, if you have ever been exposed to TB, even if you didn't get infected with TB, if you have been exposed to it and your B cells remember that, when they inject the solution with the Man 2 skin test, you will have a positive. But you may never have had TB. So just because you have a positive Skin Man 2 test doesn't mean you've had TB. But you could also have had TB. You don't know, which is why, what's the true telltale? Chest x-rays. Because if you've had TB, you will have the gong foci, right? Which is the encapsulated kind of mess of the dead debris and all that kind of stuff. You will have some kind of residue in the lungs. So sometimes they skip the man 2 test because there's so many false positives that the chest x-ray is the option. 
Okay, so we know all about that. So everybody's happy with skeletal TB, also known as POTS disease. Okay, so we're going to move on to, what are we doing? I think there's eight tumors, eight bone tumors we're going to cover. We're going to go through these fairly quickly. And the reason why is because this isn't going to be anything you're going to treat, right? Could you treat TB of the spine? Well, you're not going to treat the TB, but are you going to treat the spine? Yeah, you're not curing the TB, but yes, you can treat the spine once it's been diagnosed. There's damage occurring to the IVDs. There's damage occurring to the set joints. You need to treat it. So whereas these cancers and these tumors, there's not going to be a whole lot you can truly do for them. It's more so recognition, referring out, getting the diagnosis, figuring out if it's benign or malignant. Okay, so we're going to go through these a little bit quicker. I'll point out the things I need you to remember about them. Okay, so first of all, yeah. Should we take a break after we do them? Oh, we can take a break now if you want. That'd be cool. Okay, we can take a break. I, whatever. Or we can take a break halfway through. Now? Okay, let's take a break now. Okay. I'm putting that to you, Andrea. No, I don't. None taken. <laughs> Yeah. Dim them. Yeah, they just they give them five 
Arthritis, and you may think of an adult no. or kids. Arthritis. That's not what I want. That's not what I want. It's not congenital. The only reason we say it's not congenital is because it's not just present at birth. That, so the word congenital, like con and genital, like with birth, that's what that means. So, because you don't always have it just at birth. You could have it at birth, but sometimes it As develops. As a result of the birth process, uh, Possibly, but you could also oftentimes have it developed during utero, whereas it may not be too bad until all of a sudden, let's say, you're in the birth canal for hours and hours and hours, and they end up having to do an emergency section when your hips are going to be in the adductive internally rotated position if you're stuck in the birth canal, for example, that could trigger Right? So you're right, it doesn't only be found at birth, the process can start before, but the traumatic birth, because remember we talked about one of the things okay, you want to so ask let me ask you this, though. Okay. I mean, just in terms of the question. But would it be fair to say that it's not commonly caused by a traumatic birth? Like, it, like it, wasn't even, them, it wasn't you said on the, it wasn't even on the list. So it would be the least common. Caused by a traumatic birth. Yeah. Like, that's what I mean. It just, it wasn't one of the, it's I don't think the, it was even listed it's as a cause. It's a risk factor. So one of the things you, like, and I think we talked about this when we were talking about it, you need to ask the mother what the birth was like. Um, how long was it? How hard was it? What did, was there any appliances used? Um, we yeah. did for a lot of the other ones, but not for for risk factor, right? For hip dysplasia? I do have it there, but my understanding was that it wasn't just because it was in here for it didn't 
did not understand why it's traumatic birth. Like, I didn't realize they were saying, I thought they already had it, so I didn't realize that their fat is what. The process of it not being formed will occur in birth, whether or not they actually have problems when they're born. So they only have problems if there's a traumatic No, but it, can, but it can trigger it. So let's just say it's slightly, so it's supposed to be formed like this. Let's say it's formed like this, okay? You may, it may correct itself in the first few months of life, and you may never know. But with a traumatic birth, like I was saying, if the hips are in an awkward position for a prolonged period of time with difficulty, like especially being stuck in the birth canal, that's like the biggest, biggest one. Now, when you've changed the angle, now this will actually start to become flattened because of the head of the femur. So it can worsen it. So it's not a cause necessarily, it's a risk factor. That is one of the things is really, really common to have when you have a traumatic birth. I just, I guess if it's the way you interpret, however you interpret so, the question, like I interpret the hip dysplasia itself develops in utero. Yeah, like the, the anatomical deficiency develops in utero. That's what I'm saying. So they actually have hip dysplasia in utero. Yeah. Like they, do you know what I mean? Like they don't actually have hip dysplasia. Like yes, the trigger okay. is not currently caused, so what we caused it would be what happened in utero, Okay. The so, trauma or the trigger. Like I would say the traumatic birth would be like, more like a dislocation yeah. resulting from a okay, mild hip dysplasia. So plus the if you're if you're born yeah. if you're born with hip dysplasia, can can it correct itself? Yes. Okay. Let me. Ask. Oh, no, 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 okay. Let me finish. Can it correct itself? Yeah. With proper positioning. Can it get worse or can you create? hip dysplasia if you swaddle the child for too long, for too many months in an improper position. Yes, but it's not causing it. That's my question. Do they already had the anatomical deficiency? Was that listed as a risk factor for hip dysplasia too? It causes the problem that they're feeling the symptoms, but it didn't cause it because it's developmental. It's what we all got caught up. Okay. It would have already so, been caused in some way or form. But if you are swaddling your child, you could that child could not have congenital hip dysplasia when they're born, and it can develop it See, after birth. That. That's what we did in Canada. Like, it's wild. Like, if they had it, it made it worse. If you realize swaddling where it It can cause it. Okay. In the first few months, right? I mean, after. What after you get into kind of like month three or four, chances are you're not gonna create, you're not gonna change the acetabulum. But when yeah. you think about it that way, that makes that's what we didn't understand. Like we thought okay. it was only caused it. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the wording, so I see the wording was a bit. Um, and speaking of wording, you 100% said something about estrogen. And because I would have said too, like, could you then could you not argue that if um, he, a child was born with a very mild hip dysplasia and they started walking and they fell and they got a hip dislocation, would you then say that the fall caused a dysplasia? No, probably not. Once the acetabulum is fairly formed, it ossified, even... Okay, so no. okay. I understand more um, now, it makes more sense. I'm glad I understand that. Let me go back and see the percentages on that. I have on the, That's okay. Um, does estrogen not stimulate osteoblastic activity? Like six or seven of us wrote it down in our notes that you had said that. It wasn't in our notes. I had it written and then when I got it right I googled it too and yeah. that's the number one thing. It promotes it 
it promotes osteoclastic activity, but it really declines osteoclastic activity. So when I put estrogen helps prevent really the number one thing to come up is this. Like it was in our notes, and I, when I got it wrong, I was like, I'm um, assisting Benny McDean casting absorption from the guy. Assisting Benny McDean. Like, I don't remember you uh, just mentioning yeah, it at all, but I remember you mentioning the audio Let me look at that. Because that may have been that may have been me doing a. We were like, I think she just entered it in wrong. Like, and she said the osteoblast. Oh, no, that's in, very like, possible. So yeah. Well, it happens, right? No, no, that's yeah, no, possible. We were just, that's like, why we confused. Yeah. Your question. And at least just like, to I have remember she said anything about vitamin D. That's what threw us off. Really? So what number was that? Eight and? Uh, 22. 22. The last one. And then I have one more. Because nothing really got Same. flagged to it. Same. Like, nausea. Like, that nausea would cause just as much as anorexia in my I wonder mind, if it's going to let me edit it. Shoot. The other two, I'm like... Let me see. Oh, oh so... I'm hitting the graduation. That makes sense to prevent. Estrogen tends to prevent <coughs> early development of natural horses. Okay, prevent. Inhibiting kidney activation. Inhibiting assisting by maintaining calcium absorption. Okay, assisting by maintaining calcium absorption from the gut. Yeah. So, I would agree with you. Yeah. Now, this one's a stretch. No, that's uh, that was supposed to be the correct answer. Submit an update. I'll just take care about my stretch. Seven? And I think you're looking for That's fine. You don't have to blame it on the light. Okay. Okay. No, first of all, I know. Really no indication that it's right. But what threw me was, first of all, in the notes it says, the goals on the offensive side would be higher. And also the Developmental displacement. Yeah. Yes, higher. But here it says the, on the left the Bluetooth fold seems lower, and it's left, left, lower. So I was like, oh, wait a second, maybe that's not right. And then it says he, and I was like, 85% of cases are girls. So with those two things, I was like, is she trying to throw a curveball here? And I was like, the only, the, and then the time was running out, and I'm like, well, he's a boy, so. That's what it came down to at the end. That's fun. Okay. But and I know it's a stretch. Like I may have read into it too much. You did. But you definitely did. But yeah. No, you definitely did. That's the thing because it does say gluteal fold higher on affected side. That is most common presentation. So but, yes. Okay. Oh, about that test. Twenty-two. Hold on, before I forget. Okay. We just went over the last one too. Yeah. I was like, I, I wrote so it. She's gonna think about that one. Yeah. What? Actually, the thing is not coming. None of the. Yeah. Okay, let me go through and see. Not at all as well. It was, was a tricky like, one. It's the least common out of all of them to be caused by a trauma. The rest are all. And in that case, it's not like we didn't know. We really did give it a lot of thought. <laughs> no, no, I hear ya. I thought I did. Check if you got the email. And I have one more quick question too. Okay. Related to the test. Yep. Um, no, I Okay. Even though I'm to film like a two-minute interview, that we can insert 
with you as part of the presentation and just giving your experience in terms of whiplash. Well, no, and we'll ask specific questions. We're not going to be like, explain whiplash. We'll say, you know, in your practice, have you found that the guy who walks in is really making it simple? But the guy who walks in with the neck brace versus the person who walks in who's been actively moving and engaged in a more proactive, self regulating regimen. Have you found Okay. The only thing I will ask is because there's different degrees of WAD, right? WAD 1, WAD 2, WAD 3. Over first to two. Oh, okay. So as long as you tell me. Okay. And the phase, and like we'll have done all the background research. We're okay. really just using you to prove, and if we're wrong, right? Like we will have done everything leading up to it, and I'm talking like three questions. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So I meet with the Just tell me when. Tomorrow, and maybe, yeah, some. Yeah. That's fine. Just email me when you okay. want. Yeah. My migraine theory. Yes. I'll look at that after. My thought process yeah. is because in, in pregnancy, we're learning that when we have increased relaxant, it influences all the connective tissue, including the veins and such, so then you get like a blood, uh, blood pressure drop. Yeah. So my head, my thought process. Wait, remind me, remind me what you're talking about. Um, migraines. And then oh, migraines. Right, 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 right. Yes. And then I, yes. I think that, oh, what's my theory? Oh, yeah, connective tissue is influ influences it a bit. Because it's more common around women. It is. And then there's no known reason for it. Correct. And then I know like, I experience that a lot when I, like, if I don't eat a lot or if I'm not drinking enough water, then I, like, I get that. It's like the, there's like this aura, and then I have to lay down. So I feel like my blood pressure has a huge influence. If I drink more water, then well, my blood pressure. Okay, hold on. They, they used to believe it was all based on vascularity. So blood pressure changes essentially, so pressure changes in vascularity. And that's what they used to believe triggered migraines. They've thrown that theory out. The neurologist, I'm just telling you, I don't know what research has been done, but the neurologists that have, like the neuroscientists that have been doing research on that, for some reason they have thrown out the vascular theory. It makes sense in my head, because I'm like, well, like, and we all believe that. And then yeah. getting up and seeing like, in my head, I'm like, that makes so much sense. Yeah. There wasn't said in class, it was just me. I was just like, this is like, that makes sense. And if this was five or ten years ago, we would say, yes, you're correct. That's what we currently believe is cause of migraines. Now we have no idea. I mean, it's more common in females. There's a thought process of is it hormonal? But, yeah, we don't really know. It says it starts from the best mistake. So in my head, I'm like, again, I just come back to Yeah, yeah. Like, man, I just take I, 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 I mean, my patients, not the men, because they usually get cluster headaches, but the females, there's usually some kind of change in life. I mean, there could be some traumatic emotional stuff, but I find hormonally there's usually been some kind of change. After pregnancy, postpartum, like, it's been associated with it, or change in menopause, or premenopausal, or so. But it's not. But it's not always. So I mean, you may there may be different types of migraines that may be linked to hormones. But yeah, currently we have no idea because they really haven't found anything that is a direct link or a direct association. I'm sure I mentioned that. It was just my thought process. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's totally fine. It's good to be thinking. So 
Thank you yeah. for adjusting the thing. I can't. It's not. Oh, God. Oh, my God. So thank you for that. Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's happened like, not a lot. It's great. You're operating this once a year that it times out. Oh, so my God. I see what it says. I didn't see So I can point about there. Yeah, like, I, when I saw that happen, I was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> but then I knew, like, how cool were. I was like, ah. Now, what is easier for you, flexion or extension? Uh, yeah, like if I ask you to touch your toes, does that cause pain or is that relieving? If I ask you to go backwards, does that cause pain or is it relieving? It's relieving like my, because I've been seeing a chiro, and this is my husband. It hasn't been like imaged, but he's like, you don't have it, if not like confirmed, this is what he needs to get imaged. I know, I'm going to see him on Friday, so I'm going to ask him to refer me to imaging, just to like make sure. So chiros can do all x-rays, but they can't do CTs or MRIs. We can't refer for that. Go see a GP. Do you know if they get Cairo to pray the level with his suspicion and his testing and make it very point specific? Because if it is point specific, the GP will refuse doing testing. An x-ray will probably show your anthelolasis, but it will not show a discrimination. So truly, you should be getting a CT or an MRI. He's not going to want to do that unless there's a really good reason why. 
so I would get, yeah, I mean, so you can get an x-ray to confirm what's going on at, L at 5S1 if that's really what's going on, but it's not. But core, 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 core. Yeah, when you're doing core, maintain your lower low doses. I know extension is related for you, but that's actually going to worsen your anterior lysis if that's truly what you have. So don't go into extension. <laughs> Do your core maintaining that normal lumbar curve. So no, like, you know, both legs up. No doing leg raises. No doing sit-ups with both knees up. No, one leg down, one leg up. If you want to do leg raises, one leg down, one leg up. Um, if you want to do sit-ups, one knee down, one knee up. Can okay. I do a straight leg sit-up? With one leg down, yes. Because you'll still maintain the lumbar lordosis. What about like both legs straight? <laughs> no. Because if you lift both legs, you're changing the pelvic tilt. Sit up. No, because you're still getting out of the lumbar lordosis. At all times when you're doing core, you need to maintain the lumbar lordosis. So you never want to have this. Because you're creating flexion. Which is aggravating for you for one. Okay, so that tells me that it might actually, it's going to make the disc worse. And I don't want you to go into extension, even though it's relieving. I don't want you to go into extension because it's going to make the lumbar lordosis worse. So in all, in all core exercises, you need to keep the lumbar lordosis. Do like bird dogs? Planks are awesome. Just make yeah. sure you're really, like, really tucking yeah. in, right? Like a bird dog. But image, 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 because... Like the, yeah, oh, I call that cross crawl. <laughs> um, yeah, image, please. Okay. Yeah, because then you can sit in here and look at your natural pelvic and then keep it tight throughout. Yeah, I know. Well, like... Because that'll make a huge difference as to what you can do for treatment. I saw them last, like, a month ago, and then... Like, I've been doing exercises and stuff that you can get. And is it helping? And yeah, it has been. Like, with the ridiculous symptoms, because yeah. he wants me to, like, centralize it first. And then, uh, yeah, I'm going to see him Friday again, and just, like, in the follow-up, so I'll get like, uh, do you know, I want to know what's going on. <laughs> so. If you want to sit your MRI, you're going to have to go see Yeah, I know. It's because my GP sucks. Like, I hear that all the time. I went to him initially for... Like, I don't know if you remember, like, the uh, foot. I don't remember anything. Tingling. Like, <laughs> the foot. And I'm just tingling that was, like, traveling up the side of my calf. Um, on both sides, like, you said that it might be tape fashion. Or, like, I don't know. Oh, yeah, like, I think I remember this. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so well, we're talking about different things that could cause it, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I went to my GP for this, and he did a straight leg raise. Like, oh, what's your sciatic? And like, I like, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, they're but not MSK specialists, but unfortunately for imaging. Yeah, so I'll get the referral note from my company. And be really strong on the yeah. CT MRI requisition. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so for... Yeah, we just went through that. <laughs> okay, can I can I do it after class? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah. But I'll go through what we had talked about. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Eight or seven? Eight, I had I had chosen the wrong answer, so I changed the answer. Oh, okay. That was my bad. Okay, bone tumor. Okay, I'm gonna tell you right now. You need to know which ones are benign and which ones are malignant. Hands down, you need to know that. 
okay? Because I would probably ask a question like, which of the following is a benign bone tumor? Which of the following is a malignant bone tumor? Okay, so that's really important. So right off the bat, we know which ones are going to be benign and which ones are going to be malignant. What does benign mean again? It's not cancerous. Can they grow? Yes. Can they impinge on structures? Yes. But they're not usually dangerous, right? They don't spread, they don't metastasize, they don't destroy tissue. Okay, whereas malignant means it's cancer and it can metastasize. So this one we really need to find early detection for because it needs to be detected early so that you can treat it appropriately. This one we don't really worry about too much unless they're compressing neurovascular tissues, really. Okay? All right, so we're going to go through these a little quickly. So osteoid osteoma. This is a very small benign bone tumor. Small, less than one centimeter. So if you were to look at this on an x-ray, the next one we're going to talk about is larger. Osteoblastoma is going to be much larger, and that's how you differentiate the two. These can cause pain. Even though they're benign and they're in a bone, they can still grow a little bit. This one will never grow more than one centimeter. Hint, hint, that's important to know. It's small, but it can still cause pain. The other thing to know about this, so this usually happens in kids. Okay, so usually under the age of like 25, 30 kind of thing. So here you have a kid that complains at night of bone pain. What do you think? Pains. You think growing pains. Now, growing pains usually happens for a couple of days, <coughs> maybe a week, and then it goes away. This is intermittent, but goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, it could be in the long bones, so it could be in the femur, could be in the tibia, could be in the fibula, could be in the humerus, could be in radius. But like if he or she feels it in one area. Oh yes, yeah, stays in that area. Yes, 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 for sure. Yes, so it's the bone tumor will always be in one area of the bone. So what it looks like is very tiny. So this is a CT scan. So it's very, very small. It's oftentimes in the cortex of the bone, oftentimes, okay? So we say it's a cortical benign tumor. That's very small, less than one centimeter. Now this one is kind of getting close to that one centimeter range when they started measuring it. But it still stayed within the one centimeter and it's in the cortex of the bone. So it looks like here, what, is, what would you call, what would you call a gray spot on bone or a grayish spot on bone? Unossified. Okay, unossified, well that's kind of what's happening. So we call it a radiolucency. So radiolucency means that there's a gray spot in the bone. It basically means that the cortical bone should be really, 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 really white, right? Because it's calcified. And now all of a sudden there's this part of cortical bone that's not so white. It's lucent. You can also almost see through it. Okay, so if you see that, this is one of the things you're going to think about. So bone pain at night, commonly. Kids, so under the age of 30. And if they take NSAIDs, the pain goes away. That's classic for osteoidosteoma. Really classic for osteoidosteoma. Not classic for any other condition, really. Sorry, if they take what? NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. <laughs> like your Advils, your Aspirins, Aleves, Naproxens. When you say at night, is that like already like Sorry? If they say at night, is it like something 
that will like wake them up? It can. It can. Either one. Either one. So night pain, oftentimes when we talk about cancer, night pain is one of the red flags. So when a kid comes to you and tells you that they wake up at night, are you going to say, it's just osteoarthritis, don't worry about it? No. It's a red flag. So if there's any other yellow flags or red flags for cancer, what are you going to do? Refer out. An x-ray is a simple test to be able to see whether this is destructive or not. Benign bone tumors do not destroy tissue. Therefore, when you look at these, they're very clear. Okay? It's a very clear delineation. It's not messy. It doesn't look moth-eaten. It doesn't look like it's growing and spurting out things. It's a very nice, clear, crisp lesion. That's benign. Malignant tumors are not. They're messy. They don't have clear borders. They'll have sclerosis, so they'll have like things that are kind of like sticking out of the bone. It does not look good. This looks good. Benign, okay? But you would never know unless you had imaging. So CT scan or, or x-ray, that's how you differentiate. So if there's bone pain, you've got the red flag, what do you do? You refer out and let the GPs come up with it being osteoid osteoma. If you work as like a chiropractor, would you refer to them to get the x-ray? Depends if they have x-ray facilities. <laughs> so I will say, chiros, we, that's part of the training, is to look at x-rays. Um, if a chiro does not have x-ray facilities, it usually means that we're not seeing x-rays all the time. So I would strongly recommend that a radiologist review the x-ray. Um, that's kind of the thing about when you go to the hospital or you go to these ultrasound x-ray clinics, they have a radiologist that reviews them and then that person becomes liable. So if the Cairo has x-ray facilities, they're usually looking at x-rays fairly frequently. Um, again, they're not a radiologist, but we are trained to look at them. So yes, they can pick those up. But that's truly not gonna be a true diagnosis for a Cairo to make. That is a little bit out of our scope. We're not oncologists, right? So they can look at it and say it looks benign, but they'll usually refer it out to, or they should refer it out to a radiologist. So if somebody just has like a 50 year girl plate issues, Okay, um, so that could be a metabolic issue, that could be a systemic issue, that may not actually be a skeletal issue on its own, it could be an endocrine issue. So um, yes, you would typically see it at the epiphyseal growth plate, you may not see any evidence except that their stature, their height is not where it should be. Then pain necessarily may or may not be there with epiphyseal growth plate issues depending if there's any trauma to the bone around it there may not be yeah how would you differentiate like the type of pain being um, like growing pain or this we don't oh okay that's the whole problem okay. we don't you can start to get an indication by asking history does this last a couple of weeks and then it comes back six months later a year later then you can get an indication it may be growth growth spurt or growth or growing okay. pains but if you are at all in doubt, 
Would this pain go away for weeks and then come back, or not you typically have constant? Like it's it's fairly constant, but they may say they had a like last night. I didn't feel any pain. I didn't wake up last night, but it is fairly Maybe consistent. Like days in between the pain. Probably. Might be a day, maybe two. Yeah, but it's fairly really consistent. consistent. No. Okay. no, no. Okay, so yeah. Also feel a night. Often. Okay. Oftentimes. Okay, so that's osteoid osteoma. Um, so NSAIDs, kind of that's the big one. If you give them NSAIDs, non-serial anti-inflammatories, and they don't feel the pain, it goes away, they get relief, mm, good sign. But could it just be an inflammation? Really, you never know unless you refer out for imaging. Okay, so osteoblastoma, benign tumor, okay? So same thing, not destructive by any means, you're fine. However, this is greater than one centimeter. So this is kind of the same thing. Kids get this under the age of 30 more commonly, a benign bone tumor, but larger than one centimeter. So when you look at it on an x-ray, you would see, look how big that is. And again, we would call that a radiolucency because it is more grayish. It should be white because it's bone, but it's more grayish. So you've lost a little bit of calcification because of the benign tumor. Now, you can have osteoblastoma in the spine, and if you do, it is more likely to be in the pedicles. So if you remember where your pedicles are, they're the first thing that come out of your vertebral bodies. So that starts to make up your neural arch. So that's kind of a bit of an issue. Now, we said these benign tumors are not a big deal, right? They might grow a little bit. They possibly could impinge. This could possibly, it's not common, but it could possibly cause a radiculopathy, possibly. But what's the big issue? What do you think is the big sequela with benign tumors? There's a radiolucency, which means you're taking away calcification. So pathological fractures is usually the most common complication or sequela of these benign bone tumors, okay? So know who? And then osteoblastoma more common in spine, whereas osteoblastoma is more common in long bones. Know that there's a size differentiation. These might not necessarily be painful. So osteoblastoma is way more painful than osteoblastoma. You may or may not have pain with osteoblastoma. You don't usually have night pain. And NSAIDs don't help you. So can you repeat them? You're saying them so fast. So, yeah. Osteoblastoma, the bigger one, no. Right now, is not as painful. May not have night pain. Does not get affected by NSAIDs. That's weird because this is bigger. You think that it would be more painful. Nope. So, osteoid osteoma is the smaller one. Night pain, very common. So, pain, very common. And then NSAIDs are helpful. So if I were to ask you on a test, for example, what the difference would be size and clinical manifestations, because it hits the same people. It likes kids under the age of 30, right? Okay, and they're both benign, so we're not too concerned about them. Okay, osteosarcoma. This is one you don't want. Sarcoma usually means cancer of connective tissue. So whenever you see that kind of preface, that word sarcoma it's always meaning a malignancy so this is malignant and it will metastasize okay so this is a bone cancer 
So where are the most likely places for it to metastasize? Remember we talked, when we talked about cancer, we talked about the four most common places that things go, cancer goes. Bone, lung, liver, lymph nodes. Okay, so this starts in the bone, so it's either gonna go liver, lung, or lymph node. Okay, so that's probably the most common areas. Again, it likes young people under the age of 30, which typically, the older we are, the more likely you are to have cancer, right? Because the more likely you are to have carcinogens. But osteosarcoma is much more common in the young, so under the age of 30. So this is a big one. Um, it really likes long bones. It really likes around the wrist and knees. It Could it be anywhere? Yes. yes, but it really likes around the wrist and the knees. So, and it's malignant. So we're not gonna worry too much about the risk factors. Any kind of bone lesion will give you a risk factor. So let's look at the manifestations. Pain for months to weeks, or weeks to months. Anybody super concerned? Yeah, people don't really get too concerned about that. So maybe their growth can be affected if it crosses the epiphyseal growth plate, but it would take you a long time to recognize that, right? Months and months and months, maybe even years. So you might not necessarily know that. Pain and disability. So you're not able to use the knee or you're not able to use the wrist or the elbow. Well, if there's pain, does that kind of sound strange? Mm -hmm. No. So because I have pain, I don't want to use it. So no one's thinking this is cancer. Fever, not always, but sometimes. So what do you think? I might be thinking septic arthritis. I might be thinking osteomyelitis. I might be thinking sepsis. Am I thinking cancer at this point? Okay. So, metastasis will usually go to the lung, that's fine. So at this point, until you've had imaging, you're not thinking this is a big deal. That's the problem with this. So, I don't know, I must have hurt myself. It's just not healing very well. That's usually what people say. So if this does go to metastasis, if it does go to the lungs, you're at stage three, four. Treatment at this point really isn't gonna do a whole lot. So if there is pain that is unresolved with or without treatment, things should go away in a couple of weeks, right? Especially if there's no trauma. If there's no trauma and there's pain for a while, please get these people to get an x-ray. You can see this on a simple x-ray, okay? It's not clear that they have cancer. The symptoms are not bing, red flags, okay? They may have weight loss, but they may not. They're kids, right? Okay, so a PET scan is the ideal thing, really. I mean, they don't usually do PET scans. Once they do an x-ray and they realize that they think it's malignant because it looks really messy, then they'll usually do, and go, uh, do a PET scan. But initially, they don't, won't usually do that. So this does not like radiation. So your option is cut it out, cure it, clean it all out, and because it's malignant, they really take away much more of the bone than they need to because the chances that it has spread is probably pretty high. Um, and they will do chemo. They'll do chemo before and after the surgery. So that is very, very, very common. But this radiation does nothing to this. So you can radiate the bone all you want and it doesn't work, which is really unfortunate. So. We talk about a Codman's triangle. When you hear the word Codman's triangle on an x-ray report, that's pretty classic of osteosarcoma. So if you look at this, this it kind of looks triangular shaped, okay? So that's very common. 
And that kind of looks messy, doesn't it? Do you see a clear, defined border? <coughs> That's a bad sign. It's like when you're doing the ABCs for skin cancer. If you see your borders, if your borders start to become unclear, if the levels change or if the elevations change, if the color changes, right, all those things, asymmetry, all those things you're looking at, it's the same for x-rays. Not clear border, it's now starting to grow outside of the bone, not normal, okay? And if it's triangular shaped, oftentimes we start to look at osteosarcoma. But are we diagnosing this? No reason for the pain going on for a long time Refer out. Simple x-ray. Okay. Now, it likes kids, so does Ewing sarcoma. And I actually have a story about Ewing sarcoma. So one of my girlfriends, her daughter was five, I think, at the time when she called me. And she said, okay, so my daughter, Emily, has been complaining of pain in her right thigh. She goes, anytime I touch it, I pick her up. She goes, ow, mommy, that hurt. And she says, I'm just picking her up. I'm not even... I'm not doing anything and dressing her. If I'm touching that area, it gets really painful. And I said, okay, so is there bruising? Is there heat? Is there swelling? Is there inflammation? No, 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 no. So I thought, okay, did she fall? Like, can you think, is she in gymnastics? Is she in dance? Did you see her? Has anybody reported anything? What about at school? Has there been any injuries at school? No, 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 no. I've talked to her teachers. I've talked to her gymnastics instructor. I've talked to her swimming coach. She's been to everybody and nobody can think of any trauma. So I said, well, how long has this been going on? She said, it's been going on for about three weeks now. Mm. So no trauma that we can think of. And I said, is it getting any better? Because if there was an injury, it should be getting better within three weeks, right? So no change, she said. No, it's about the same. It's been like this. She doesn't want to let me touch it. And she's, you know, she's starting to limp a little bit. I said, you know, I really think you should just go see your GP and get an x-ray. Because I don't know what that is. What do you think? She's a kid five years old. I mean, chances are she probably hurt herself, but... There's no signs. She had Ewing sarcoma. Yeah, so she was diagnosed at the age of five with Ewing sarcoma. She was in surgery within 48 hours. They cut out a whole like, big chunk of her bone and then they did radiation. They didn't do chemo for her, but they did radiation. So she is now eight and so far so good, cancer free. But that's huge for early detection because you can imagine as an infant, like how many times would you chalk it up to, well, you probably just fell. Or you're being dramatic. She was five. That long. Three weeks? Sometimes you're like, three weeks out, you could have had a really bad fall. I don't know. Maybe I never noticed the bruise. If you have more than one kid at home. Yeah. And if they're really active, that's how to look at the kid too, right? But again, long story short, these are the, these are the classic symptoms. Oh, where do we go? So, flu-like symptoms, malaise, fever, tiredness. Anybody worried? No. Not too much. Pain in, the, in, a, in an area of bone, like when you touch on them. Again, they're kids, they may have had an injury, right? Um, so this is not just when they touch them, but in this case for her, it was just when you touched it. But they also when you touch them, or no? Usually, the osteoastroma is usually pretty painful most of the time. Osteoblastoma, it depends. Um, if it's not painful, it may just be on contact, but sometimes it can be a low-grade pain. So it, it, it depends on the Did you like palpate the tumor on the bone? So I did ask her to do that. She said she felt the bump, but she said it's hard to feel. And 
like she lives in Oshawa, I live here. So I hadn't actually seen her. So I don't know how significant it was. Her palpatory skills may not be great. Um, so there was something that she could feel, which the first thing I thought of in my head, I was not thinking Ewing sarcoma. We're gonna talk about a condition where bone can be formed inside muscles. That's actually what I was thinking of. Because I thought, okay, she probably had a fall, she probably fell a few times, and she's probably got this other condition. But I thought, ah, an x-ray will be able to show it. But the x-ray showed you in sarcoma. Would this always, or would it, not always, but the pain when you touch, that's specific to this? Uh, no, it's, uh, More bone, bone cancers, period, are usually painful on palpation. Any, pretty much almost any bone cancer. Not benign tumors, but most cancers of the bone will be painful. So again, so there's bone pain, okay, so we know, and it's intermittent. So she only had pain on palpation. Sometimes you may only have pain at night. Sometimes you may only have pain every couple of days. So again, is that really concerning? So delays diagnosis, which is really a big deal. You may have some swelling and redness in the area. Okay, but what would you think if there is inflammation in the area? I think you probably hurt yourself. Am I really concerned about that? How fast does the bone cancer really spread? It depends. Um, osteosarcoma is a fairly aggressive one. So if it's, if it's kind of let go for you know, six months to a year, it would probably metastasize. Ewing sarcoma is almost as aggressive. So these, like, these ones are not ones you want to play with. And on top of that, it's kids. And those, yeah, those are all under 30, right? Yes, yes. Um, so again, flu-like symptoms. So these symptoms don't scream out cancer. <clears throat> Except that there's a lack of trauma and there is pain. So again, please get the x-ray. So when we look at it, does this look nice and clear? This one doesn't look so bad, the border, but look at this. What's going on here? Looks like it's missing on the top part. So this isn't really good. It almost looks like there was a chunk taken out of it, right? So this would be the treatment. They'll actually go out, take a whole bunch of bone out, because they take more than they absolutely need, because they want to make sure it doesn't come back. Because the likelihood of this coming back if they don't get it all is very high. Um, so usually they'll put in a rod if they need to take out a component of the bone. <clears throat> now, you'll notice they took out the fibula. That was proactive. Uh, what's really thin there? <laughs> what really does? Funny. Because it, it, what does? The, the fibula, it's like. It is really thin. It's thin and straight. It is. It's non weight bearing. That's why it's so thin. Is it always straight? Yeah. yeah. I thought there was a bit of a curve in it. I mean, it bows a little bit, but not significantly. <clears throat> um, so this is quite common to have a rod put in when there's surgery. Now she was, this patient, my friend's daughter, she, it was caught really early. So they just took a whole chunk out. They didn't have to take out the whole bone. But this is usually what happens when it's caught at stage two. What? At least for actually. Why is there, no. they didn't put anything on the fibula side? They took the fibula out. But so on the next x-ray, there's like a little, you can see the head and like the. Yeah, they, they took the shaft of the fibula out. And then what? They cut it out. Just, like, around. Put something in? No, they don't put anything in. The really? fibula is non weight bearing. The only function the fibula has is for attachments of ligament and, when and you move that muscle. muscle when the fibula moves with it. The leftover pieces. They will yeah. usually attach those muscles to the tibia. Like they. Oh. The, the thing is, uh, you have to pros and cons. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is there any chance that it moved that it, this metastasized and went to the fibula because it's right beside there? Is there any chance? Yeah. Yes. What's more important, to take out the possible metastasis yeah. or to worry about the muscle attachments? No. They'll just attach them to well, the tibia. It's funny, like I was just thinking, like if you move that one, the bone will go with it because something will be yeah, there, there won't be a whole lot of attachments. And the ligaments will stabilize the head, really, what it attaches down here, the deltoid ligaments. And it, <laughs> um, but that's kind of the pros and cons, right? It's yeah. more important to take out the possibility of the malignancy, and that's why they do that. It is. I mean, it will feel like a hard mass. So we'll keep going, and if hopefully we'll get there. We'll uh, talk about another condition that is going to palpate very similar to it. Okay, cardoma, cordomas, malignant, but low, low metastasis. This used to be considered um, benign, but they realized that actually, in fact, if these are left for years and years and years, they will actually start to metastasize. So these are low on the grade of metastasis. So even if you caught this at a stage two or three, you're probably going to be okay. So cardomas really like the spine. We should know where these occur. Spino-occipital area. Sacrococcygeal area. It's up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's up there. Yep, spino So in the skull. And we're going to see a picture of that. So it'll eat away at this, where the sphenoid meets the occiput, kind of at the back of the skull. It also likes sacrococcygeal area, which could affect the cotequina. So is there a possibility with neurological symptoms with this one? Yeah. Much more common because it does, it's in the brain essentially, it's of the skull, or it will usually be in the spine, upper cervical spine, or lastly, it'll be in the lumbar spine. So, this can have neurological symptoms. So, if you've got Cardiquinus syndrome, it could actually be secondary to a chordoma, which again is cancer. This is malignant, okay? This is no longer considered benign. So, common symptom is pain. What is the most common symptom with cancer? Pain. All right, so depending on the location, they may have um, really bad headaches, which could present like meningitis, which could present like lots of different conditions, hydrocephaly, for example. But another thing you could think about with recurring chronic headaches that you can't find a musculoskeletal cause for could be chordoma. Now, these are pretty rare, thank goodness. But it's not a bad idea to get a cervical spine, or a, to get a head x-ray. You'll be able to see these on a head x-ray, okay? So again, it'll present like a radial lucency. Um, it, is, it is, this one can be more common as we get older. It's, this one isn't really a big one of children. Ewing sarcoma is a big, big, big one of children. Osteosarcoma too. But the bowel and bladder dysfunctions usually will only occur with the sacrococcygeal issue. Right? It obviously is not going to happen in this phenoxypital area. So the big symptoms here usually are neurological symptoms. And if they don't get better with treatment, then they usually send you for an x-ray, and then you'll find that it has a chordoma. Okay, so that's usually what gets people diagnosed. So when you look at these, in this area right here, which is the phenoxypital area, you're seeing, you're seeing a lesion. So that's going to be on a CT scan. Now here, this is going to be in the lumbar spine, which is the least likely place of the spine that's going to go, but it's possible. And here you're going to see a radiolucency. So this is going to have a dye in it, which is why it looks really white. This is a CT scan. 
but typically it looks like a radiolucency. Okay, so it's an area that's been eaten away. Again, it's bone cancer that's been eaten away. Slow growing though, which is really great. Yeah, yeah, x-ray is the most important thing. So giant cell bone tumors, cancer, cancer, cancer. So you have osteosarcoma, Ewing's, chordomas, and giant cell tumors. Cancer, cancer, cancer. Okay, that, malignant. This is more likely to metastasize than a cordoma. So it is more aggressive. But it's not as aggressive as an osteosarcoma or uterus, for example. Okay, but it, it, it is likely to metastasize. So don't ask me why, but they have found that this is more common in the Asian population. I don't know. That's what they found epidemiologically. So it will destroy bones. Most of these, what, what does cancer do? It destroys, right. So it looks like a radiolucency. This again really likes wrists, elbows, knees, ankles. So it really kind of likes the long bone area. So pain or weight bearing. So if you had pain with weight bearing, would you be all that concerned? I don't know, my foot hurts. Maybe I did something. My elbow hurts. I must have slept weird, right? Okay. If you have any radiation going into the legs, now you might be a little bit more worried. Now you might get an x-ray. And hopefully, if it is an x-ray, they'll be able to see it in the femurs or if it has gone to the spine, which is not most commonly, but it can be in the spine. If there's metastasis, again, it likes to go to lungs. So when people start talking about having spinal pain or bone pain, and all of a sudden they start to have respiratory issues, that is probably the most common um, metastasis for bone pain. So really pay attention to that. If there's chronic bone pain and there hasn't been any testing and now they're starting to have chronic cough or they're starting to have difficulty breathing, that could be the first sign of the metastasis. So again, you may be one of the first persons to be able to assess that because they may not have a GP. They may be too afraid to go to the doctors. I can't tell you how many patients will say to me, I'm not going to the doctor because I don't want to know. So let me just keep treating you then. All right, possible abdominal discomfort. Usually at that point, it's because it's metastasized. So really, all you have here is pain. The only symptom before your metastasis is pain. <coughs> what do you guys treat? Pain. If there's something that's not feeling good right here, please refer out for imaging. All right. So that's, that's, yeah, I mean, it just looks like a radiolucency. Now, if you look at this one, this one doesn't look so bad. Does this look really like, ooh, that looks bad. It doesn't look so bad. I mean, you can see a little bit of cortical destruction. It doesn't look super clear, but that doesn't look so bad to me. It almost looks like an osteoblastoma, right? But that's why the radiologists, I mean, they're in tune to looking for all of those structures. Okay, multiple myeloma. You guys have not covered this, right? Okay, so it's supposed to be covered in hematology, so we will cover it again a little bit, but we'll talk about it now. Multiple myeloma, cancer. Older individuals, this is most common after the age of 40, 50, sorry, and most common after the age of 70. It really likes the African population. That's kind of the epidemiology. Now, I did have a patient with this, and she was actually of Japanese descent. 
females. So this is more common in males, more common after the age of 50, and more common in Africans. My patient was female, Japanese, and she was maybe in her late 50s, maybe early 60s. And this was the diagnosis. So multiple myeloma. So many, and then myeloma. Myel, my, M-Y, we think spine, right? Oma means condition of. So what ends up happening is, this is actually a bone tumor that likes to affect the axial skeleton. So spine and skull. Now when you're looking at this right here, we call this salt and pepper skull. Because there's white parts of the skull and there's black parts of the skull. The skull is supposed to be white, right? Because it's bone. Bone is supposed to be opaque on an x-ray. When you see eaten out areas of the skull, one of the first things you think about this is classic multiple myeloma. So if you ever see that, classic. All right, so it's actually a quite a fairly common condition, so you'll probably at some point have a patient or a patient's family member be diagnosed with this. You will probably run into this. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, hold on. We'll talk a little bit about those. Okay, this is bone cancer of the bone marrow. Okay, so where do we have bone marrow that is really, um, working a lot. So it likes clavicle, like skull, like spine, likes ribs, and it can like femur. So those are usually the areas that you're going to have the eaten out appearance. Ribs, spine, skull, and it can also be in the hips or in the femur. So your bone marrow make what? Red blood cells. So are your red blood cells going to be screwed up? So if you don't have very good red blood cells, that means you don't have very good hemoglobin carrying capacity, what condition do you end up with? Anemia. Because low red blood cells or low hemoglobin means you have less oxygen carrying capacity and that leads to anemia. So you have that. What else do your bone marrow produce? What about platelets and thrombocytes? So how's your clotting? your clotting's gonna be a little bit lower. So you may see bruising on these individuals. It's not the most common symptom, but you may see bruising. What about your white blood cells? Also created there. Also created there. So you're gonna have a decreased immune response. Definitely. Now, this is what the bone looks like, we said. So bone is being eaten away. That means your calcification is being eaten away. So that means you're losing calcium in the bone, and where's it going? Dumping into the blood system. Do you want a lot of calcium in your blood system? So what do you do with it? Get rid of it. You're going to pee it out. So you're going to have hypercalcemia of the blood. So you'll be able to see that on a CBC or checking for your electrolytes on blood tests. And then what about your kidneys? What's going to happen? Are they working too much? Absolutely. It could develop kidney stones, but this is going to end up with renal failure. Because the kidneys, they can't keep working at getting rid of all this calcium. So when we talk about our crab, okay, this is what you want to remember for multiple myeloma. So you have calcium being released into the blood because of the bone issue right, because osteoclastic activity increases, 
You have your renal issues because the kidneys can't keep doing it, so they're eventually going to fail. You have anemia because your red blood cells are not being properly formed. And then you have bone pain. Why? Because the bone's being eaten. So if you could remember crab, that's pretty much everything you need to know about multiple myeloma for symptoms. Okay? So could you have spine pain? Could you have low back pain? That's actually multiple myeloma. Could you have really bad headaches? That's actually multiple myeloma. Could you have rib pain? That's actually multiple myeloma. All of those really common places to develop multiple myeloma. So that's how you would test for it. Now, let's talk a little bit about our immunoglobulins. Okay, remind me about B cells. Okay, first of all, we have our acquired and innate immune systems, right? Okay. So our innate immune systems are things you're born with like skin, fever, inflammation. Those are all kind of things that the body will do. Your white blood cells, are you born with a whole lot of good immune system? No, that's why they suggest breastfeeding, right? Because you get the immune system from your mother. So you acquire your white blood cells. Now white blood cells are known as B cells and T cells. So you have your humoral immunity, if you remember that, that's your B cells. Then you have your cell mediated immunity, which is your T cells. Those are the two main types of acquired immunity. Your humoral immunity are mostly made up of your B cells. B cells will differentiate after they come out of the bone marrow. They differentiate into what? What is it called when they start to become adults? They're called plasma cells. Okay, so B cells will differentiate into plasma cells. Plasma cells, they're kind of like the adults now. They can work properly. What do these, what do these plasma cells, what do they produce? Antibodies. What is another name for antibodies? Immunoglobulins. Antibodies is the exact same thing as saying immunoglobulins. Okay, so we have five different types of immunoglobulins. Now, the reason this is important is because when you go do a blood test, if your, for example, IgAs are through the roof, your doctor's gonna be able to say that you have a parasitic infection probably in the GI. So each of these immunoglobulins will fight some type of pathogen or antigen. So if you have a lot of one kind, it usually starts to steer you in the direction of what the problem is. Okay, so these are really important. Now, are these going to be properly produced if the bone marrow is not working properly? No. So usually what ends up happening is these aren't really properly produced, which means you don't have properly differentiated plasma cells, which means you don't create all these variety. Oftentimes what will happen is you'll just have one that's being produced. So it'll be in massive levels of an immunoglobulin. It could be G, could be M, could be E, could be A, could be D, whatever one. But it'll be massive levels, and then when you check all the other levels, there's like nothing. That's also very classic, okay? All right, so. We already know what to look for. Now, this is a cancer. So are they going to probably have weight loss? Are they going to be fatigued? Are they going to have malaise? Okay, so all classic symptoms. But crab is specific to multiple myeloma. Can you see what the symptoms are again? Yeah. 
So calcium, too much calcium, so hypercalcemia, which is gonna be found in the blood. Renal failure, because the kidney's working too hard to get rid of the calcium. Anemia, because your red blood cells are not being produced properly, because the bone marrow is being screwed up. And bone pain, because your bone's being eaten. Okay, so that's really important to know your crab. All right, which is what it looks like, salt and pepper skull. So when we were talking about the, like the immunoglobulin, the one that's being produced the most, okay, that's kind of really the only one being produced, we're going to call that the M protein. That M protein, when there's so much of it, sometimes in the kidneys getting damaged, sometimes you can actually start to pee it out. When you pee it out, it's called a Ben Jones protein. So in fact, if you did, if you, if this, if you had multiple myeloma and it was fairly progressed, you could do a urinalysis and see the Ben Jones protein and probably diagnose multiple myeloma. But it would have to be progressed enough that the kidneys are damaged enough that it's actually letting go of the immunoglobulins that are too much. Okay, so some things to look, some things to look for for multiple myeloma. Now, you have a 70-year-old who's been diagnosed with multiple myeloma who's having some bone pain, but otherwise not doing too bad. Do you go and do chemo, radiation, do a whole bunch of surgery? Really, are you gonna do spinal surgery or are you gonna do surgical procedures to the skull? No. So usually, if the person's in fairly good health and the manifestations really aren't that bad, they're usually just gonna do a wait and watch. They're not gonna do any treatment because the chemo and radiation is gonna make them feel so ill and they're actually not doing too bad. Now eventually, when the symptoms do get really bad and they're having pathological fractures right, left, and center, because that's usually what ends up happening, it'll usually be the decision of the oncologist and the patient. They may look at doing chemo and radiation. It's not gonna fix this, but it can possibly prolong their life. Would they try to manage the symptoms before, like? They'll usually prescribe NSAIDs for the pain. Yeah, but uh, like, I'm leaning more of like, things like address like, Um, not typically, um, there's no way to really, the anemia they can help with a little bit, but they're not ever going, I mean, they can provide them with supplementation, but it's not going to fix the red blood cells. So as much as the supplements they take, it's not carrying the oxygen. So you can't, you can't really truly fix that. But yes, medication for pain, they will absolutely 100% have a pain. It's just, it's palliative. It's not doing a whole lot. So unfortunately, usually once you've got diagnosed with this, um, you will pass from it typically. It's whether or not you want treatment to prolong your life and what your life would be like How when you prolong it. Um, the patient I had, by the time she got diagnosed, she was she had passed away within nine months. But she had had bone pain for a long time. She had a little back pain. I mean, I saw her for, I'm gonna say probably a year and a half, on and off with low back pain. Had no idea she had cancer. She was in her late 50s or early 60s. She had retired early. So, oh yeah, it's not very old. Not very old. I'm just surprised they wouldn't do any sort of treatment earlier, because if it attacks the exile, But what is the treatment doing? Is it going to take away the cancer? Is it gonna cure it? So that's, I mean, usually with radiation and chemo, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to kill the cancer cells. In this case, First of all, the patient you're looking at is usually elderly. How are they gonna tolerate the treatment? And then they're already elderly. How much more life do they have in them? And then what kind of life do they want for the rest of it? 
So it, it, it I mean, it, it's a call, like I said, for the oncologist and for the, uh, the patient. It's not. It's not. Um, but you can't fix it. That's not going to fix it either. That's not going to stop it. Okay, osteochondroma. C-H-O-N. What does that mean? C-H-O-N. What does that always mean when you see that? The cartilage of ribs? Okay, C-H-O-N, you should always think cartilage. So when it says osteochondroma, you think bone cartilage condition up. Okay, so this is, we, we call it the mushroom or the stalk, okay? So this likes to have an outgrowth, so you'll look at it. Very classic, this is classic osteochondroma. And we actually had a patient who, or there was someone in class recently, maybe last semester, and her sister had this. So she, she could feel a lump and it was really sore. Not sore all the time, but sometimes it was sore and if she poked on it a lot it was sore and she could feel kind of a hard lump. So she eventually went to go get an x-ray and they realized it was an osteosarcoma, or an osteochondroma. So benign, not a big deal. What do you do? Okay, but it'll probably grow back. So really, like, leave it. Like, it's a benign tumor. Are you worried about it? However, <laughs> however, when her sister came to talk to me about it, she was saying that, you know, five years ago she couldn't feel anything. But now she can feel this hard mass, which means it's growing. I know. I didn't ask that question. But to me, right as soon as she said that, it's growing. So what's the issue? So it is on the inside. So, I mean, the femoral artery becomes a popliteal artery right in that area. So now I want to say, check her capillary fill, check her pulses. You know, what's the color like? What's the skin like? Are there any other visceral issues going on? Um, if you have any of that, get her to the GP because you will want to do surgery. But typically, if it's not growing and it's, and it's a little bit painful, surgery could be way worse and the consequences of the surgery are way worse but now if it's changing or affecting vascular structures or neurovascular structures now they will go in and do surgery but this is not a big deal you will feel these you will feel them do they move no 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 it's bone oh, oh yes yeah. <laughs> well, it's okay, but we call it osteochondroma because it's usually bone with a cartilage cap. So that's the cartilage part. So usually this out part here, um, it's much more it's much more gray because it's usually cartilaginous. Now there are different kinds, which I don't care if you remember. There's pedunculated and non-pedunculated ones, which basically means it has a stalk or not. So this one's not very pedunculated, and this one's pedunculated, which means it has a stalk. Who cares? Point being, it will always point away from the joint. An osteochondroma will always point away from the joint. So if I had this pointing towards the joint, automatically I'm worried about it. Because it could not be benign. It may be malignant. It's because it's not a chondroma. Chondromas never, never, never go towards the joint. Okay? So that's important to remember. And we're not too concerned about it. Really, there's not a whole lot you're going to do unless it impinges on things. 
Okay, the last one. Enchondroma, C-H-O-N. So this is now telling you it's happening in cartilage areas. Cartilage being the epiphyseal growth plate. Okay, so it likes that area. That's typically areas that it will affect. Now, when you look at it, what would you, do you like the look of that? I don't like the look of that. I don't see a clear white border. I mean, it's not really jagged, but I still don't really like the look of that. What about this? I don't like the look of that at all. And that's an enchondroma. So if you look at this, again, I don't like the look of this. This does not look clear and crisp, but benign. So to the untrained eye, which I would consider myself an untrained eye, I'm not a radiologist. This does not look good to me, but it's benign and we don't worry about it. It really likes the distal digits. So it really likes like metacarpals and phalanges um, and metatarsals, but it could be anywhere, but it does really like the distal ends and it likes the epiphyseal area. So if you look at this, look, the epiphyseal growth plate would be right here. The epiphyseal growth plate would be right here. The epiphyseal growth plate would be right here. So it likes that area, it likes that metaphysis, okay, which is where there used to be cartilage. Osteochondroma? Yeah. Um, it's usually on a long bone. But like anywhere along the long bone? It's usually going to be at the ends of the diaphysis. Um, it could be in the metaphysis, but it's usually at the ends of the diaphysis where it's starting to become a metaphysis. But it could be. It could be in the metaphysis, yep. So again, we're not worried about this. What are you going to do about this? Once you realize it's benign, they don't do a whole lot. Now, again, what is one of your possible risk factors? What, what is one of the sequelas? What is the complication when you have decreased bone mineralization? Pathological fractures. That's always the problem with benign tumors. They could grow and impinge on things, or because you've taken away some of the calcification, there can always be a pathological fracture. All right. So this is what I thought that little girl had, myositis ossificans, which is also known as heterotrophic ossification. Um, those terms we should talk about a little bit. We usually use those terms interchangeably, but they're truly not interchangeable. So heterotrophic, this word, heterotrophic ossification, basically means you have ossification in an area it's not supposed to be. So in any kind of connective tissue, you could have ossification. Not really for a cause, for some reason, we don't really know why, it just starts to happen. Whereas myositis ossificans, myo, ossificans, ossification of the muscles, that is happening because of trauma. That's really the only difference between the two. Heterotrophic ossification doesn't necessarily have trauma, whereas myositis ossificans always has trauma, and it's usually repetitive or a really significant trauma. So, let me ask you. Soccer players, rugby players, football players, hockey players, when they get hit repetitively, okay, so I get, I get tackled on my thigh, and I get tackled on my thigh again. What happens when I get tackled on my thigh? A bruise. A bruise. What is a bruise? It's a hematoma in the muscle. Okay, so there's blood entrapped in the muscle. Now what happens? The body is supposed to get rid of that blood, and then everything's supposed to be fine. Now what happens if I keep getting hit? I keep putting blood in there. The body eventually says, what the heck? There's blood in the bone. I don't want that. It's not supposed to be there. What do I do? 
I'm going to lay down bone because I don't know what else to do. I'm going to calcify the area. That's how I'm going to clean it up. So that's my aestheticism which is what I thought she had with repetitive trauma because that can happen. So this is classic with a major, major one-time trauma. Like it has to be really hard or much more common with repetitive trauma. So basically the muscle hasn't healed yet. The hematoma, the contusion hasn't fully healed and then you just keep re-traumatizing it. Body doesn't know what to do, calcify it, lay down bone. So how, what imaging do you think would be really easy to see this in? However, what if it's just starting to calcify and it's not really fully calcified? You're not gonna see this. It may take four to six weeks before you see this on x-ray. So in ultrasound, you may see it on. A CT or MRI, you're definitely gonna see it on. But who gets a CT or MRI within a couple of weeks of being injured? Not very common. So if the x-ray comes back negative, then usually they'll do an ultrasound. And on the ultrasound, they'll see something a little bit odd. Then at that point, they may refer you for a CT or MRI. But history is your big one. Was there a major trauma? Did you have a bruise? Is it hard in that area now? If the answer is yes, 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 this is the first thing on my list. If there's no trauma, I might put cancer on the top of my list. But if there's trauma, this is number one. So who do you think gets this? Really common in athletes. Really quite common in athletes. Okay, awesome. Hi. Hi. Okay. Um, anything else we need to talk about? So definitely please know the cause, that's really important. Um, we already talked about the terminology, so that's fine. So what does it feel like? Okay, well it's gonna be warm at the area, because before you calcify, you're gonna have inflammation, right? So it's gonna be red, heat, swelling. There's probably gonna be a bruise there. And then eventually you're gonna feel something hard. Now the hardened feeling could take two to three weeks before you start to feel things getting hard. And then it just, continues to get harder and harder. So here's a question. Patient comes into you, tells you that they've had a massive repetitive trauma, I don't know, something fell on them, and then they keep whacking that same place on the door when they pass through it, and now all of a sudden you're starting to feel something a little bit hard. As a therapist, what do you do? Is it a complete contraindication? Is it a local contraindication? Is it a precaution? Are there techniques you can do? Are there techniques you don't wanna do? there because I keep hitting it and then so at this point the bruise is yellow green but it's starting to get hard it's feeling hard okay so friction so let's talk about that so if I friction the area I'm causing inflammation that's causing more blood supply that's causing more hematoma and what's the body gonna do lay down more calcification because that's gonna make it worse so what else do what else would I do so I just don't want to touch the area Okay, maybe. So just, so you can choose not to work the area at all, but we also know that if I don't do anything, it's just gonna stay there or get worse. So do you wanna do any deep tissue massage? Do you wanna do any aggressive techniques? Okay, so initially you may wanna do some lymphatic stuff, I get that. You may wanna educate them about maybe protecting the area so that they don't continue to traumatize it. That's really important. And you're gonna be careful with your tissue techniques. Passive range of motion would be wonderful. Maybe even some gentle isometrics would be great. Some gentle, gentle 
massage would be wonderful, some petrissage. And as the bruise goes away and it starts to break down, then you can work deeper and deeper. But while there's that hardness there, you want to be careful. So unless you take the course, an additional course, ultrasound is actually a really good thing for this. It helps to break up the calcification. So we're not doing that as massage therapists unless we're additionally trained for it, but that is something else you can do. Would you heat the area? So if it's like blue, purple, I would agree with you, but if it's really healed and there's already calcification, are you causing more damage by heating? So when it's further along, you can heat it. It's not, but it's when it's causing more damage. If you're gonna, it's gonna bring some blood supply to the area. It's traumatizing the area. That's something you don't do. So you just wanna be careful with your techniques. But please send them for an x-ray or an ultrasound and the x-ray comes back negative, it's because there's not enough calcification yet, send them for an ultrasound. Because you'll know 100%, it's easy to see this. Okay, so guaranteed you will see this. And if you're gonna work with athletes, 100% you are going to see this. I've probably maybe only seen about three cases. My ex actually has it, it's like um, something. Yeah, it's not uncommon. Ah. The um, two out of the three patients I had this, I've seen this with, were soccer players. So it's not uncommon. So this is what it looks like. On an x-ray, should you see the Achilles tendon? No! It's collagen. Do you see collagen on x-rays? No, you see things that are calcified. Is this normal? No. Now that's fairly far gone. In the thenar eminence, should you see calcification in the thenar eminence? No. It's muscle, you don't see that on x-ray? How would you even do that? Repetitive, well, repetitive trauma. Or if you worked on it too hard, if it was bruised and you kept working on it, kept working on it, kept working on it. Okay, polymyalgia rheumatica. Tell me about... Polymyalgia rheumatica, really. Okay, so tell me about... Um, oh my god, temporal arteritis, I almost forgot. Tell me a little bit about temporal arteritis, which you guys learned about last semester. No, 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 no. Yes, you learned it. You learned burgers. You learned, and you learned polyarteritis nodosa. nodosa. Okay, so polyarteritis nodosa, burgers disease, which is thromboangitis obliterans, and temporal arteritis, all those three, are known as vasculitis disorders. So vascular disorders. So vasculitis or arteritises, which means inflammation of arteries. Okay. So here with temporal arteritis, it tells you exactly what's happening: inflammation of the arteries in the temples. Wonderful. Okay. So the reason we need to talk a little bit about temporal arteritis is because 15 to 20 percent of people diagnosed with polymyalgia rheumatica will develop or already have temporal arteritis. Now, how is temporal arteritis gonna present? Inflammation of the arteries in the temples. So how's that present? Headaches! People say, oh my God, I have such a bad headache. And then it'll go away. And then the arteries become inflamed. Oh my God, I have such a bad headache. What do you think of when someone talks about headache right here? I think upper trap trigger point. It's the first thing I think about, right? or TMJ issues, right? Temporalis trigger points. Classic. Who thinks of a temporal arteritis? 
Okay, so polymyalgia rheumatica, classic presentation is over 70. And they present with shoulder girdle and or hip girdle pain. So sometimes it can start with just my right shoulder hurts. And then all of a sudden, maybe at the same time or a few weeks later, now my left shoulder is starting to hurt. I'm an elderly individual. How much activity am I doing? But now what if I told you, well, we just had a snowstorm a couple of weeks ago and I shoveled. So what do you chalk my pain up to be? Maybe it's a bursitis. Maybe I have a strain. Maybe I have myofascial pain syndrome because I overuse my muscles, right? That's what you're going to chalk it up to. So if you have a patient who is elderly, who is complaining of bilateral, it may not start that way, but eventually becomes bilateral, either shoulder girdle or pelvic pain, like hip pain, you need to put this at the top of your differential list. Okay, even if there's a cause for it, even if they tell you, well, I think I might have slept on it wrong. Okay, well, did you sleep on the other side wrong too? Because people like to come up with reasons. So that's really classic. Yeah. Because oftentimes people have pain in one joint, then they start overusing the other mm -hmm. joint, and then they end up having But this happens quickly. Like within a couple of weeks, it could be days to a couple of weeks, the other, the other side is affected. And then compensation then, especially when you're elderly, how, what you, how much are you doing? So, if we break up the word, poly means many, myalgia, muscle pain, rheumatica, you think like a rheumatoid arthritis, like a rheumatologist is joints, right? So this presents as muscle, multiple muscle pains and joint, okay? So, it is more common in females, so is temporal arteritis, and it's more common in Caucasians, but it's usually in elderly individuals. So that is very, very, very important to remember. So if someone comes in with bilateral shoulder pain and they're elderly, this has to be on your differential diagnosis list. Sorry, uh, this yes. causes temporalis artery? No, so if you have this, 15 to 20% of people diagnosed with polymyalgia rheumatica will either develop or already have temporal arteritis. Okay. And they say if you've been diagnosed with temporal arteritis, almost 50% of the ones with temporal arteritis will eventually develop polymyalgia rheumatica. So it's really important to know your health history. Because if I've had this, if I was diagnosed with this in my 30s or 40s, chances are I'm gonna develop this. And that would be really great for me to be able to know because now the only way to treat this is corticosteroids. I can try and help with the pain, but I can't fix this. We can't fix this. Nobody can fix this except for corticosteroids. So usually it takes three to six months of taking corticosteroids and the pain just goes away. We don't understand why, but it just does. So how do you diagnose this? Pardon? When the pain goes away, they still take it. You should be taking it for three to six months. Yeah, so, and then so you take it for three to six months, the pain goes away, are you continuing to take it or it comes back? No, or, oh. no, no. But let's say we're going to look at a video possibly of a gentleman who took it and after a week, he's like, I have no pain anymore. Don't stop taking it. You should be taking it for three to six um, months, okay? To really, truly allow for the inflammation of the joints to truly go away and basically resolve the issue.
Now, you can help to make sure that the joints are mobile so that there's not contractures and there's not a lot of compensation, there's not a lot of scar tissue, but you can't fix this, okay? So if you're suggesting that someone has polymyalgia rheumatica, you get them to their GP and you convince them to tell their GPs they need corticosteroids. Because if they start to feel better on corticosteroids, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. That's the true tell. There's no x-ray that's gonna tell you it's polymyalgia rheumatica. There's no CT, there's no MRI, there's no blood test. So this is a hard one to truly know, 100% you have it, until you get treated with corticosteroids. Then you know 100% you have it, okay? So you tell them, I think you need to go to the doctor, and then you need to test, or you would just write the paper? I do both. I tell my patients, and sometimes they don't remember, so I always draft the letter as well. And then on it, do you, do you give your reasons and stuff why, right? What I my history what my is, what my examination detects, what my top three clinical impressions are, and this is why I think it's number one, and this is what I'd like to see you do. Right. I'm scared that like, they think we're diagnosing them. I, you, I'm, carry with my, I'm careful with my words, um, and I always say I strongly recommend. I don't say please do. Um, and I always use the word clinical impressions because they do get, even if I'm writing it as a chiro, they get very snippety with being stepped on. So yes, be very careful with your terminology, but also be very pointed. Because it's really easy to treat this. It just needs to be diagnosed. Okay, so that's the big one. Please no corticosteroids. Are there any um, repercussions of being on corticosteroids for that long yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these people are older anyways, so you have an increased chance of cancer, um, increased chance of liver issues, renal issues. So here's my question. Do you not worry about those consequences when you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s and not move because you're in so much pain? Or do you say, you know what? I might have those issues in 10, 15 years. I'm taking it. Usually, you take it, because they're in so much pain they can't move. And this is excruciating pain, by the way. Like, they can't get themselves out of bed. They can't shave, they can't brush their teeth, they can't get dressed. They literally cannot move their hips, if it's a hip issue, or their shoulders. They can't get their arms above their head. They can't pull themselves, they can't push themselves. Like, it's excruciating pain. Is it okay? both, or is it like more? It's usually either hips or shoulder, it is possible it's both, but it is usually, yeah, bilateral though, okay? So, now this is important. The pain is worse in the morning. Now, someone's gonna say, but isn't that the same as arthritis? Yes, but usually osteoarthritis gets better in like 15, 20 minutes of you moving around, you start to feel better. This will usually take up to an hour. So that's another big differentiating factor between osteoarthritis and, rheumat and rheumat polymyalgia rheumatica. Okay, so that's a big one. The pain can be the same, that dull, achy, stiff pain, not being able to move, lack of range of motion. And please remember, where did I write it? Right here. Giant cell arthritis, also known as temporal arthritis, please know that it has a strong relationship with polymyalgia rheumatica. Can we just quickly watch a video? Because he's like classic, classic, classic presentation. So for arthritis, like actual arthritis. Osteoarthritis, yep. The pain goes away. Mm, it's intermittent. It comes and goes, comes and goes. So like, after half an hour, get Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel better. Hours. This one you can usually take up to an hour. Yeah. I didn't realize it was not fit for 
osteoarthritis. There's lots of different types of arthritis. About how this started and what symptoms you had to be at the beginning. I had the blower, the snowboard, the blower, and then the next day, the pain came. It was a lot of snow, very heavy. Where was the pain? The pain in the shoulder. Was it more one than the other? Yeah, I left one on it. Okay. And then it comes down to my hips and it comes down to my right Okay. And what's happened in the past month? Okay. So bilateral shoulders, he's having hip pain and it goes down his leg and it's after snow blowing. Is the first thing you're thinking about polymyalgia rheumatica? You would be thinking you probably sprained something or strained something because of the snow blowing, right? This is classic. It really is. No, it really is. Is there a time of day that it seemed to hurt more? In the morning. What happens in the morning? In the morning, when I get up, my wife had to help me out. Help and you out of bed? Yeah, and, uh, and then uh, I had to take them all because it hurt so bad. And then a couple of hours after, it wasn't so bad, but it still hurt. Okay. And it's still hurting now. Yeah. And, and you're having trouble getting dressed? Yes, I can. So my wife had to do it. Your wife has to help you? Yeah. And bathing? Pardon? And bathing? Washing yourself? No, or? I, I can. She has to help me. Okay. And um, what about turning over in bed? Oh, that's the worst thing. I can't. Why not? I, I lay down on my back, I have to stay there because it hurts too much. Okay. I can't put pressure at all on my shoulder. Have you lost any weight? Yes, I did. Uh, about 20 pounds. 30 Over pounds. How, how long a period of time? 20 or 30 pounds, you think? 29. About 29. 29. <laughs> well, I started before that, before it hurt. So the weight loss started before you started having pain? Yeah. yeah. And then after I had pain, I couldn't eat, right? Okay. Have you had any fever? No. You're a hard working man. You said you were a welder? Yes, a welder. And where did you weld? Yeah, the outfit on here. This hospital? Oh, so it really does spread pretty fast. Maybe I can just ask you to lie down for a second. Put your feet up. There, okay. And lie on your back there. And then, uh, and then can you get out of bed for it? Can you get out of bed by yourself now? Okay, so your wife needs, you can help him up. I like to, you can help him up now. Okay. There we go. How, how about walking? Are you having trouble walking? It's, it's sort of getting up and out, eh? Try and do this for me. Do that as far as you possibly can. Okay, the other one? And the other one? That's as far as you can go on that one? Okay, go on. Okay, all right, good. Okay, now we'll bend this up a bit here. Can you pull against me hard as you can now? Okay, that hurts, eh? That hurts there. Okay, now about this one? Can we pull on this one too as hard as you can? Okay, push against me as hard as you can. 
Okay, well, you're a strong welder. You're not so strong today. <laughs> yeah, not so hard to push, push again. That's uh, yeah. very weak. Eh? That one is, is that weak or is it hurting? It hurt. Hurting. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what ESR means. Um, what does the erythrocyte sedimentation rate mean? What does that mean? Does anybody know? It's a sign of inflammation. In CRP, your C-reactive proteins are another very big sign of inflammation. So it doesn't tell you anything except that there's a lot of inflammation in the body. So if you have a high ESR and a high C-reactive protein that come back in blood work, it tells you you've got to look for inflammation. Oftentimes we think of arthritis, arthritis when you have high levels like that. But in this case, it's not. It's polymyaldrumatica. So you started on corticosteroids. And you started taking uh, four pills a day. Yeah. So what happened after you took the pills? It, uh, the next day I had no pain. The next day? Yeah, I took it at night. Yes. The next day, next morning I got out of the bed. Like the thing and he's moving his arms, really? yep. Yeah. No, this is this is a week now yeah. since I saw you. Yeah. So, how much better do you think you are? Every day is okay as long as I took the pills. Uh, okay. Before I wanted you to do with both arms, like to make a touchdown, you know, like okay, okay. can you can you do that? Yeah. Oh, you can right over like that. Yay. How long did it take before you could do that? After oh, a couple pill? of days. Just a couple of days. Yeah. So, I don't feel no pain. Good. And then can you get up? So, yes, but that's the only way you can truly diagnose polymyatromatica because what does inflammation tell you? Would you have high ESR and C-reactive protein levels with a lot of conditions? Yeah, almost any arthritide. Most of your infections you would have, have levels of that. So the only thing that really indicates polymyatromatica is the treatment. Cool? Okay, we got through it all, good job. Sorry, where are the So next week we're doing arthritides. Read up, read up because it's all stuff you will see in your practice all the time. Oh, it's only 5.52. Okay, only two minutes, that's good.